This next show is a show about overcoming the impossible. It's a story of perseverance, dedication, and pure patriotism. All the things that make America a great place to live. It's one of the best stories I have ever heard in my life. Please welcome Nick Lavery to the show. And I only have one ask for you. Please go to iTunes and leave us a review if you get something from this episode. This is amazing. Let's get to it. We just pumped Nick full of like six units of the wrong blood type. There's no way he survives the flight. So just be prepared to receive his body. We would be getting dudes that were coming in from these other elements for, uh, for us to work with. Did that bother you? That can get tricky. One of the individuals that was inside that Ford Ranger jumped up on the back of the truck and engaged into the group with that PKM. I see what's happening. All right, gun on, 15 or so feet away from the group, ripping into the crowd. Guys are dropping, guys are scrambling. Things are blowing up kind of all around. And uh, I just feel the impact. I have to cauterize your face back together, taking an AK-47 round to the side of my face. Young kid, first deployment, fresh out of basic. And he's 15 feet in front of a guy who's shooting machine gun in his general direction. I know everyone in the truck is dead, and my right leg is just fucking mangled. It's just like hammered meat and tissue and exposed bone, and there's just a river flowing. It's a, the ultimate mass cow scenario. To this day, considered the most catastrophic insider attack since the global war terrorism began. Nick Lavery, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, brother. It's an honor. So you're the only active duty guy that I've ever had on. You're still active. Correct. Is an SF guy. Correct. Chief Warrant Officer. Correct. You'll probably be the last one that I have too. <laughs> <laughs> we don't get very many active guys. Sure. Uh, wanting to come on. Actually, I've never had one. But um, 
So I want to just run through, I want to run through your entire career as much as you can. And with, a, with, with the audience, I just want everybody to keep in mind that Nick is an active, you're on an active ODA, active SF guy. And so topics can be uh, limiting. Correct. You know, because because you are still active and you're and you're in it. So uh, we'll definitely respect that. And if if we do happen to go into anything that you're uncomfortable, then just just let us know and and everybody gets it. Yeah, man. And and, uh, and before we go any farther, I just want to say thank you for your service. I know that's weird to hear, but no, I appreciate it. Likewise, man. Perfect. Thank you, man. Mm -hmm. But um, <clears throat> so, objective secure. Yeah, man. New book came out what a couple months ago. Yeah, late January. How's that doing? It's doing well. Is it? Yeah, man. And you asked me that question uh, kind of when I first got here. And I based my response to that question solely off of the feedback that I've been given from those that have checked it out and read it. And through that lens, it's been absolutely tremendous. What kind of feedback are you getting? Yeah, man. So, it, you know, it can vary. Uh, kind of from the, the one end of the spectrum to the other. Uh, something as simple as, hey man, I, I took something that you that you wrote about and I recently applied it to my life uh, in terms of setting goals and achieving goals. So thank you for that, which is great. Um, and then I'm kind of on that farther end of the spectrum. Even just recently, about a couple weeks ago, I got an email from a woman who told me that her husband had attempted suicide a few months back. He failed at it, fortunately. He was on a real destructive path. He stumbled upon my Instagram or something, found the book, she bought him the book, he took a look at it, and uh, he's made relatively a 180, and he's doing really well. Now, I don't claim to be like the catalyst for that, but from her perspective, uh, myself and what's in this in this book was a part of that process for that individual. And that's quite powerful, man. You know, you get a message like that from somebody, yeah. you're able to really reach out and, and touch somebody and, and positively affect someone's life. So kind of the, the entire range of the spectrum, but it's been, uh, it's been really humbling and it's an honor to be, you know, part of people's process. That's amazing. You know, the other thing is you're the first amputee that I've had on here. And I've been looking for the perfect guy um, or woman uh, vet to come on here and, 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 and share that, share their story with, with the audience because mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's just, I, I can't imagine, you know, the stuff that you've gone through and, and the rehabilitation and, and, um, and we've had a lot of guys that have had a lot of struggles, you know, uh, with separation and, and transition out of the military. And, mm. and I mean, what you have been through, without a doubt, has got to be one of the toughest uh, things to overcome. And so I just I just have a tremendous amount of respect for you. And, Thanks, and, bro. and for that to happen and then to, to, to still be an active Green Beret is just, it just speaks volumes of who you are as a man. I appreciate it, man. So Thank you. Yeah. But, um, and we'll get into all that uh, a little bit later, mm -hmm. but so tell us a little bit about the book. What was your goal in writing the book? Yeah. Um, first I'll start off by saying what it isn't and it's not an autobiography. It's not, uh, 
my memoirs, and it's also not uh, a story or a group of stories uh, in, in combat, right? Like the buried up to our knees in hand grenade pins type story. That's, that's not what it is. And I think oftentimes when you see a military author, that's kind of your general thought that that's what the book's going to be about. And there's some amazing stories um, out there that I've read. That is not what this what this project is. the The short answer of what it is, um, it's a it's a personal development piece. And really, I think the greatest way to to explain it is to just briefly talk on the genesis of it, how it became a thing. And if you go back, which we'll get into, um, following my first uh, deployment as an amputee, um, coming back from that, it was uh, it was publicized. Uh, pretty rapidly. Uh, it was unprecedented for that to have happened, so it caught a lot of people's attention. As, as things progressed and I became more involved in social media and kind of gradually being comfortable with putting myself out there into the public space, uh, the questions start coming in, mostly revolving around two. One being, why do you still do what you do given what you've been through? And then how did you do that? How were you able to function on a special forces detachment with one leg? Two reasonable questions. And I'm responding con- consecutively. Boom, 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 boom. And after a couple hundred or a thousand of me basically writing the same thing over and over and over again, over the course of a year or so, I decided to just jot this down into a Word document product solely for the sake of efficiency. So that when that question comes in, I can just copy, paste, attach, send, and then there you go. There's your response. So it was about efficiency. And then it was also about taking an actual closer look at what that process looked like for me. So I kind of grew in a sense because of me doing that, right? I really analyzed, like, how did I do what I did and how do I do what I do now? And it was short, man. It was maybe eight, nine, ten page Microsoft Word doc, nothing fancy, boom, boom, boom kind of outlined the process. And I used it that way for about a year or so, a little longer. And fast forward to 2020, right? Summer of 2020, COVID is going crazy, right? People are working from home. People are teleworking, even us in the military, which was a strange time for everybody. And uh, I was about a week out from graduating dive school down in Key West, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. And a really good buddy of mine, been one of my best friends for 20 years, went to college together, played football together in college. He calls me up and he says, hey man, there's something I want to talk to you about. I got about a week left to dive school and I'm an absolute train wreck, right? Physically, mentally, I'm just beat to shit. So I'm in no condition to have any kind of serious conversation with anybody at this point. I'm like, hit me up, you know, in a week when I get home. And he does. And short version of the story is his mother's been in the book industry her whole life. Uh, worked with different publishers, worked as a librarian. And he brings it to me and says, hey, man, I think you need to write a book. And I'm like, get out of here. No, I'm not doing that. I, I, what would I even write about? Like, what are we talking about? My initial thought was he wanted me to do, you know, the Nick Lavery story, like an autobiography. And I had no interest in doing something like that. So I'm like, get out of here. He's like, no, man, I really think you need to think about this. And as one of my best friends, out of respect to him, I said, okay, I'll, I'll mull it over, fine. And over a few days... I thought about this Word document that I had sitting on my computer. I'm like, you know, I kind of already have something on paper. 
that I did put a lot of time into and effort and energy uh, that's been working. I've been using it and it's been effective. The feedback from this has been positive. So we get back on the phone and uh, I said, you know what, man, I kind of already have something. It's about 10 pages, uh, but there's something there. I know there's something there because I've, I've felt and seen the results of it. And he's like, keep going with it. Now, again, we're in the middle of 2020, it's COVID. I got a lot of extra time on my hands and energy that I normally would be spent you know, in the gym, which they were closed. I normally would be at work, working 12 hour days, but now we're doing crazy you know, on off schedules, limited time in the office. So I had extra time and energy on my hands, uh, which I took advantage of. And I just began writing. And if you had asked me a week before that point, if I enjoyed writing, the answer would have been no. But having put myself into that position, I caught the bug for it, man. And it became wow. one of those things that, you know, I'm waking up at three o'clock in the morning and I just have to get out of bed and write. And I caught, I caught the fever and I had, a, I had a backstop of December of that year where we were on our next rotation in. And I kind of gave myself that time frame to see what I could come up with. And it got to the point where I was doing five, 600 words a day uh, borderline obsessive, probably completely obsessive. And uh, fast forward two, three months from that point, and I'm sitting at you know 70,000 words. Wow. And now you're looking at something that actually has the contents of a book. Um, and at that point, it was just a, a matter of, of getting it you know polished, learning the process of, of self-publishing. How do you get it out there? How do you create a cover? How do you create the layout? So learn that, and then, uh, and then, and then hit the send button, man. Man, that is, uh, so are you still writing every day? I write every day, yeah. I write every day, you know, there's something great about it in terms of, from an analytical perspective, you know, looking at what we've done, what we're doing, how we're doing it, and documenting that process, uh, which for me began with just my training log in the gym, like sets and reps. Well, 10 years ago with sets and reps and grams of protein has morphed into something with much more substance um, journaling, right? And then more creative writing. So I do write every day um, because it's got that analytical value that I enjoy, but it's, all, it's also you know therapeutic for me as well, which has become a great mechanism for me to leverage in terms of maintaining my own you know mental wellness and, and well-being. Yeah, man, that's I. There's a lot of guys that I've been uh, that I'm friends with that say that they get a lot of therapeutic value out of out of journaling. Mm -hmm. I haven't started it yet. I, the only thing I've ever journaled is my uh, my psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. But um, but I, I should probably start. There's a lot of value in it, man. And I know for you know for us Type A's, us warriors, you look at journaling as this kind of like soft uh, task to do. Like I'm not like I'm a warrior. I'm not gonna write in my diary. Right. Yeah. There's like a sense of weakness that's associated with doing that. Um, but if you can if you can force yourself to go down that road, allow yourself to be vulnerable, even with just yourself, you don't need to necessarily publicize it. But uh, I, it's one of the one of the first things I typically recommend guys that are struggling with whatever it may be. It's like, are you writing? Are you writing stuff down? Um, most time, the answer is no. I'm like, give it a shot. Yeah, you know, give it a shot. To carve out five minutes a day and just throw some words on a page and just see where it goes. Yeah, I'm gonna start doing that. But um... All right, let's. So, kind of how I want to do this interview. I think I already said this, but want to 
do your life story, get into as much as your career as possible. But before we do that, everybody always gets a present. So. All right. Yeah. So, uh, Merry Christmas. There you go. Awesome. Christmas themed box, too. That's right. Perfect. You want me to open right. this right now? Open it up. Let's what do you, do it. you got any guesses? I'm guessing it's some kind of apparel. Man. My way, way off? off. Way off. You wrap this thing up like you're shipping it off to NASA. That's right. We're just going to get savage with this thing here, man. Some gummies. We there were just you, talking about the gummies. There you go. Yes. Now you got some. Look at this. This is awesome, bro. Yeah. You know who's going to go bananas over this? This is my five-year-old. <laughs> He's going to immediately assume that daddy came home with some presents for him. I appreciate it, bro. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Those are hard to come by. Yeah, right? Those these are, are hard these to are come limited. by. But, um, so... I try to, I always take questions from my patrons. Patrons uh, are my biggest supporters over on Vigilance Elite Patreon, and I always give them an opportunity to ask the upcoming guest a question. Sometimes we get a lot of questions, sometimes we don't. I do want to go through a Q&A with you after this. Uh, this is for Patreon only, but this one's from Darren Smith, and I was a little hesitant to ask you this, but... Um, I do think it's actually a good question. It's something I never would have thought of. He's asking, when you became an amputee, when you lost your leg, now, are, is there anything, did, did you find any benefits at all from that experience? Great anything, question. Any, any positivity that came out of that? Yeah, a, a, a ton. We could probably spend an hour on that. Um, and I'll just start off by saying that I firmly believe that there is positivity to extract from the worst of circumstances, the worst of events. I think it's simply a matter of time uh, to be able to see them. Uh, we'll get into some of that too with some of the more traumatic events that I've been through within my military career, but there is positivity to extract. And I certainly grasped a lot from this. If I were to hop on you know, maybe one or two First would be uh, efficiency. And the best way to describe this is, you know, when you put a prosthetic on your body, imagine a clock that starts to tick immediately the second you put it on. Clock starts to tick. At some point, you will have to take that limb off of your body, right? And at that point, you will be less capable, more than likely, to do what you do on two feet, or at least things will change. So a clock starts to tick, and the, the speed in that clock ticking is based on a whole variety of factors, but most significantly, level of activity and temperature are like the primary ones. Those of us that operate with a prosthetic that has an actual socket that your, that your residual limb goes into, sweat is the ultimate enemy for, a pro, for an amputee that is, or anyone with a prosthetic that is working with a, more, with a traditional socket type system. It, everything starts to get slippery. It starts to it starts to slide around. These things are shaped to your limb under normal circumstances. But just imagine when you're in a pool of water for an extended period of time. You know your fingers start to prune. Your skin starts to get um, damp, moist, feathery. That that happens to the limb itself based on the sweat. So it's that the fit starts to get worse over time. Pain starts to increase, functionality starts to decrease. So that clock will start to speed up 
based on level of activity and temperature and then a variety of other variables. So I realized very quickly that I needed to maximize as much as possible what I'm able to do while I have the, the leg on my body. And that's amplified when you live a very physical lifestyle, physically training. Obviously my job uh, in the military is one that's physical. We spend a lot of time outside where it's hot. So just dissecting minute by minute, hour by hour, what am I doing once I get upright and making that as efficient as possible, eliminating as much white space as possible. And it got to the point where I was, I was almost OCD about it, where if I would, if I would grab some items to leave my house and then I got to my truck and realized that I forgot something, I was kicking myself in the ass because now I got to go back and I got to get it. Right, those are 15 steps that I'm not getting back yeah. because I was inefficient. So I need to update that system to make this as streamlined as possible. So I got I got OCD. Admittedly, uh, drove my wife crazy at times. She's gotten used to it now. Uh, so just efficiency being one, and then the second I'll just touch on is uh, is resilience, man. And this began from the moment I got my leg for the first time. You know, the 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 second time in my life where I took my first steps. And you know, you you get set up with this thing. You have no idea how it's going to work, how it's going to fit. It's brand new. I'm 30 years old at the time. Got a lot of life experience with two limbs. Now I'm down to one. And they set you up in these parallel bars in the prosthetic office just for something for you to to hold on to while you're taking your first steps, right, for the second time. And uh, prosthetist straps it on. He's like, okay, now go ahead and walk. Like that was his instruction. And I'm looking at him like, I don't know, how do I operate this thing? I don't know what, I, what, what, what is all this? He's like, just go ahead and take a step. So I'm, I'm fumbling around, I'm gripping with as much strength as I can, right? I'm nervous, I'm scared. Uh, family members are there. Eventually I figure it out, I kind of kick it forward. I'm all awkward, you know, I'm all, I'm all messed up. Eventually I start to get a bit of a rhythm. I'm going down, I'm going back, I'm going down, I'm going back, I'm, I'm loosening up that grip on those parallel bars, I'm feeling more confident. Like, oh, wow, I can do this. Okay, things are good. I'm getting more and more confident. I'm loosening up. Next thing you know, I'm not holding on to the bars at all. I'm just going down and back, down and back. And then the inevitable, of course, happens, which is me falling flat on my face, right? Leg kicks out. Leg goes one way. I go the other way. Boom. And I look up at my prosthetist um, who knew this was coming, right? And he said, okay, now get yourself back up. And uh, I just like to use that story because not only did he teach me in that moment physically how to get back up off the ground as a one-legged guy, but more so the mentality behind getting knocked down, falling down on your ass, right? Feeling embarrassed, feeling like you just failed, um, having a whole bunch of doubts coming into your mind. All of that stuff starts to come bombing in in that one moment in time and being able to get back up and go again damn dude that may be one of the most powerful fucking things that have ever been said on this show yeah it it, it paints a great picture i know it's really difficult to conceptualize what it's like to lose a limb right i I couldn't do it um until i lived it but i think a lot of people can just put themselves in that position uh about trying to function with a robot appendage for the first time you know and then wiping out massively and uh and what that can what could that can do to you because 
whether or not you have lost a limb or not, we've all been knocked on our ass uh, to varying degrees of severity and having to find the will and the physical means to get back up and, and keep moving. So I think it's relatable uh, to, to a wide audience. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Wow. Um, <clears throat> well, let's, let's go ahead and start with your story. So I can tell by your accent, you grew up in South Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Just kidding. Actually, uh, yeah, a little, a little town outside of Little Rock down in Arkansas. That's where I call home. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, where, where did you grow up? What was family life like? Yeah, man. Um, I claim Boston, Mass, uh, because that's where I spent most of my time as a, as a child and as, as, as an adolescent. Uh, the, the truth is I'm, I'm a nomad of Massachusetts. And uh, myself, my parents, and my younger sister, we moved about every 12 months. I think 18 months was the longest I was in any single location for any given time. And most of that was based on uh, my parents, you know, two young parents. My father had me when he was 21 and struggling, grinding it out, you know, with two young kids. So a lot of job transitions and then therefore geographic uh, changes based on what they were doing uh, to survive and to feed us. And, you know, they did an amazing job at that. Um, so I moved around a lot, man. Uh, north, north of Boston, south of Boston. And we can circle back to this, Sean, but, you know, that process, if I put myself on the couch, played an enormous factor in even specific events years later, like in combat, like specific moments. I can, I can unpack that to the way I was raised and the experience I had as, as a young person moving that frequently being the new kid in school every every year damn is difficult right what, what did your old man do he did a lot of different whatever he could find things yeah a lot of different things from working at places like fedex and ups to working in, in different other factories distribution warehouses uh, my mother was mostly in the social support industry where she worked at different shelters she worked as a teacher um so different specific industries, different specific jobs, um, wherever they could find the work that they needed to support us, and they did. Um, and you know, back then, man, the term bullying wasn't taken as seriously as it is today. Yeah. Right. Back then, when I was a young kid, it was kind of just part of growing up, and it wasn't it wasn't looked at with with the level of granularity that it's looked at now, and the type of psychological impacts it can have on young people. Um, and I experienced that, you know, and I was, people see me now and they, they, they tend to have a t difficult time grasping this, but I was a really small kid. I was a, t I was a peanut. Really? Peanut. Yeah, yeah, peanut. Little dude. Um, eventually, late high school, I hit this like ridiculous growth spurt and shut up, but I was a really small kid. I was a new kid every single year, getting picked on, difficult time making friends, difficult time keeping friends. You know, self-esteem really, really low. Uh, that was just part of growing up, though, for me. And I obviously struggled through it. So I moved around a lot as a kid. I ended up going to high school in Dorchester, which is a borough just uh, connected to Boston. And, um, and that was when I started looking at the military. I think it was my sophomore year of high school. I started looking at the Marine Corps. And that was kind of a general direction that I had to go in. And that was based solely off of commercials, right? Yeah. The Marine Corps 
has historically been phenomenal with their marketing. They still are today. Very enticing. Yeah. Even that 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 dress class A uniform they have. It's crisp, it's clean, it's captivating. It's not done by accident. And the commercial, I'll never forget with this guy, he climbs this mountain and he breaks out this sword and he takes down this like lava monster and he snaps around and he's in the he's in the dress uniform. And I'm like, as a young kid, you know, sophomore in high school, I'm like, this is the ultimate badass. I think I want to be that guy. You know? So striving to be you know, a warrior and striving to be strong and striving to be respected all can be generated by, you know, my time as a kid where I was a scared, young, insecure child. And I was like, I was striving for that level of respect and authority and strength. And I was drawn to the Marine Corps as a sophomore in high school. One year, one day I skip school. I go downtown Boston. I meet with a Marine Corps recruiter and he says, yeah, man, you know, graduate um, high school and then come back and we'll get you taken care of. So I had kind of a general direction at that point. Yeah. The only thing that I was really interested in as a kid and through high school was athletics. You know, that was the one thing that I had. No matter where we lived, there were athletic programs. So that's really where I dove in, where I spent most of my time. I played just about every sport there is, you know, in high school. Uh, football, lacrosse, ran track, wrestled, played basketball. Um, football was ended up being my primary sport. And that's the one thing that derailed me from going into the Marine Corps out of high school was I started getting recruited to play football in college. Oh shit, you were good at it. I was good enough. Yeah. I was good enough to get to get recruited um by D2 and D1 AA programs. Wow. So um I ended up going to college. I went to UMass Lowell, which is a D2 program, solely because I got recruited to play football. I was not an academic. I struggled through high school uh, in terms of my grades and taking studying seriously, I despised it. I did just enough to be able to stay on, you know, on the team. So uh, football is what brought me to college. So I, I went to college, this is in 2000. Um, and then sophomore year was 9-11. So the very beginning of my sophomore year of college was uh, September of 2001. So I'm on the way to class one day and every, which was kind of rare for me, but I'm on the way to class. <laughs> and everyone is heading back towards the dorms, just droves of students. I stopped one dude, I'm like, what's going on? He's like, yeah, all the classes are canceled. And I'm excited. I'm like, perfect. I didn't want to go anyway. I'm already mapping out the rest of my day. How am I just gonna, how am I just gonna waste the rest of this day? And I head back to the dorm. Uh, so obviously I snap on the television and the same thing is on every single channel, and that's when things got got real. Once I was able to process what, what, what I was seeing, um, I was angry, man. I was really angry. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a military family, so I didn't have this sense of, of patriotism, like, buried into me as a child. But by the time I was in college, you know, at 18 years old at this point, uh, I was very proud to, to be an American and uh, the red, white, and blue meant something to me. And seeing that happen uh, infuriated me. I felt, I felt like the planes were flying into my body physically was the level of, of frustration that I had. Um, and it was, how fucking dare you just do this? Yeah. How fucking dare, do you know who you're fucking with? Pardon my language, but 
If I'm being authentic, that's what I'm thinking. Do you know who you just fucked with is what I'm thinking? Um, I and we are going to hunt you down and fucking annihilate you and your entire lineage. This is my this is my thought process at that point. And, um, and I really struggled to stay in school because I, I knew what was going to happen. And I wanted to be a part of that. I struggled to stay in school. I ended up meeting and talking to, you know, some mentors and some family. And I ended up deciding to stay in and grind out the rest of my degree, uh, which I did. Um, ended up earning my bachelor's degree in criminology. And then um, immediately after graduated, graduate, uh, graduating college, I started looking at options to, to enlist. Where did you start? Did you start with the Marine Corps again? or I didn't. I started with the Navy. You started with the Navy? I wanted to be a SEAL. No shit. Started with the Navy. And, you know, similar to the Marines in a lot of ways. When you think of... Now my education has come along quite a bit since my sophomore year of high school. Now I just graduated college. I'm 24 years old. Right? The internet is now a thing. Access to information is now a thing. Right? Um... At that point in time, which isn't much different than it is now, when you think of like the ultimate badass, the Navy SEALs come to mind very, very quickly. And that's what happened to me. And I said, I want to be in special operations. I want to be a SEAL. I want to be at the front of this fight. Uh, so I walked into a recruiter station in Boston, and they had three branches in the same building. They had the Navy, the Marines, and the Army. And I went in that order. I walked into the Navy office first and talked to a recruiter and said, hey, man, I want to be a SEAL. He said, great, let's, uh, let's get you enlisted in the Navy, and then you can place a request to you know, go to BUDS and go that route. And I said, okay, thank you, and I left. And I went to the Marine Corps office. I had the same exact conversation, and I essentially got the same exact answer. I said, thank you, and I left. I went to the Army office, and I got a different answer when I walked into the Army's office. He said, we actually have a program called the 18 X-ray program, otherwise known as the Special Forces Recruit Contract Option, which gives guys off the street the chance to bypass the conventional army and go straight into Special Forces. I said, okay, I, I'm, I think I'm interested in that, but let me go home and do some homework. Uh, so I left, I went home and I just got on the Google machine and I started looking up like, what do Green Berets do? I really didn't know. You know, at that time, I, John Wayne, right, Rambo, right, like I've seen stuff in movies, but I really didn't have an education on specifically what these different units did. So I just dug in and just spent the next day, two, three, um, researching what these entities do. And although the Army gave me the fastest route to get into SF, into SOF, it was the mission that I was also drawn to more than the other options and that primarily being unconventional warfare, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a very sexy term. Uh, there's a ton that goes into it. Um, and even just on the unclassified side, you start to extract and peel back the layers of what UW is. There's a lot of really interesting and enticing stuff within that. Uh, so I was drawn to that. I said, okay, I think this is the route I want to go. This is the mission I want to execute. And it gets me there doing it the fastest. So that was the, that was ultimately the route that I went. Is there one particular thing about unconventional warfare that caught your attention? I think it was probably 
the term denied area, which is where the definition ends, right? Activities, blah, 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 blah. In denied area, um, you know, verbiage like sabotage, subversion, um, resistance movement, insurgency, like these terms jump out. But when you think about operating in a denied area, uh, that was enticing to me. And then within that, I eventually learned more about the OSS during World War II. Interesting. When, when the Jedburgh teams jumped in behind enemy lines into France to set the infrastructure, to set the groundwork and the conditions to enable the D-Day invasion, right? And that literally is the origin, the genesis of Army Special Forces comes from the OSS. You know, Colonel Aaron Bank, he was a member of one of those Jedburgh teams. And at the conclusion of World War II, he recognized that there was a value there that needed to be maintained and grown. And then in 1952, the United States Army Special Forces became a thing. So when you look, you know, again, to answer the question, I looked at denied area and that kind of led me down the learning more about the history of the OSS and what they did and the way that they did it. Um, that, that, that's kind of what closed the deal. Interesting. Me, yeah. Being the fact, the fact that you graduated from, from college, did you look at going the officer route? I did only because my recruiter mentioned it to me. Yeah. He said, you know, you can, you can go the OCS route and become an officer because you have your college degree. Uh, the 18 x-ray contract is not an, an option to become an officer. If you want to be an SF officer, you have to enlist, uh, go through whatever means you go through to get your commission and then spend time in the conventional army, and then you can drop a packet to go to selection. You just had no interest in that? Zero. You just, and, you know, I was, I'll say I was inaccurate. There's some accuracy to this, but my perception at that time was that officers were the guys sitting behind desks telling other people what to do, and the enlisted guys were the guys that were physically doing it, which is true in a lot of sense, in yeah. a lot of ways that is accurate. Um, on an SF detachment, that's not the case, right? The captain... The detachment commander, the team leader is right there doing the stuff with the boys. Um, but that was my perception at that time. And uh, I wanted to be I wanted to be one of the guys doing the thing, yeah. not one of the guys telling someone else to do the thing. You want to get your hands dirty. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, that definitely happened. It did. I got, I got what I asked for, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so how long after you made your decision did you join? Was it... Immediately, it was pretty quick. Yeah, man. I don't remember the exact time frame, but I I signed that contract and I was um, heading down to Fort Benning for basic within a month or two. Pretty fast. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty fast. What did your parents think? <laughs> Scared. Uh, I laugh because um, you know my parents are my biggest fans right now, and they they live Green Beret history, and they're all into what we do and how we do it to the best of their abilities. I laugh because I'm 24 years old. I'm a college graduate, okay? I'm a man with some life experience. I had made my decision and I call my father and I tell him, who's my best friend in this world? Because again, he's, we're not that far in age. So he's my father, but he's my best friend. I call him up and I say, hey dad, I made a decision. This is what I'm gonna do. I'm going 18 X-ray, Special Forces recruit. I'm enlisting in the United States Army. I'm gonna get myself to the front of this fight as fast as humanly possible. And his response to me was, no, you're not. <laughs> he said, no, you're not. And I said, Dad, listen, man, I love you, but uh, 
I'm not asking you for, for your permission. I'm, this is, I'm just telling you what I'm going to do. So in his mind, you know, he's like, he's my father. So he's like, just trying to send me to my room. You know, go to your room and think about what you just said. You yeah. know, kind of thing. Um, which came from a place of concern and fear, right? Because he saw what was going on. He knew where I was going. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's my father and my mother, right? So they were, they were, uh, they were petrified of what was going to happen. Um, fast forward again, you know, to today. And they're obviously extraordinarily proud. You know, they're, they, they will bleed to keep the stripes on the flag red. Um, based on you know the, mostly the work that I've done and, and being alongside me during during the entire journey, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, going into your military service, so you sign the contract, you're going to go to the SF program. What's that? What does that pipeline look like? Yeah, so it's it's changed multiple times since then. Um, this is back in '07, and. Uh, Basic training, which technically is called one station unit training or OSIT for X-rays, uh, where and also for infantrymen that are going to go basically back to back. So rather than going to basic training and then going to AIT, which is advanced individual training, where you learn your actual job or your MOS, they're combined. So at the time, I think it was 16 or 17 weeks straight at Fort Benning. You go basic straight into AIT, knock that out. And then from there, you just go right down the street of Fort Benning to Airborne School, knock that out. Uh, and then from there, head to uh, Fort Bragg to begin the SF pipeline process. And I'm quite certain it still exists today. The name has probably changed, but at the time it was called SOPC, and of course an acronym, stands for Special Operations Preparatory Course. And it was this, I think it was a five week or six week block of training specifically for x-rays to help get us ready for Selection, right? An, an enormous asset to take advantage of over guys that are already in the army that don't have that. Yeah. You know, those guys still have to work and do their job and then get ready for selection. We had the chance for this program, which was great. And it was mostly just a bunch of PTs, land nav, not tying, right? Some SF history type stuff, but it was very physical. You'd go down to Fort, you'd, you'd leave Fort Bragg, go down to Camp McCall, be there Monday to Friday, come back for the weekend and then repeat for five, six weeks. Well, at the end of the first five days that I was in SOPC, uh, our, 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 our lead instructor came down and said, okay, we have a selection class that's beginning next week and they don't have as many bodies as they can hold. So uh, who wants to go to selection early? And um, I was like immediately like, yep, like I'm ready to go. Like I, I feel confident that I'm ready to go right now. Uh, so myself and then another like six or seven dudes left Sopsy after just the first week. And then we were in selection that following Monday. So it was kind of a, oh, wow. a fast turnaround. Yeah. But I had been mentally preparing for this for quite a while, right? Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was ready to go. I was primed and ready to go. At this point, I was 25 years old after making it through all the stuff prior to that. So I was ready to go. I was excited. I, I bombed into selection with the highest level of confidence, probably more borderline, if not completely cocky, that I would annihilate it. Um, went through selection, which at the time that I went was 14 days, got that done, and then straight into the Special Forces Qualification course, mostly referred to as the Q course. And at the time for us, us meaning 
the weapons guys, the combo guys, and the engineers, that the Q course could take anywhere from 12 to 15 months was the time frame. If you just went straight through, that's how long it would take. For the medics, it was even longer because they had an additional like nine months of medical training in their MOS phase on top of all the other stuff. So I was in the Q course for, ended up being a, a little over a year. Um, and then I was assigned to 3rd Special Forces Group as an 18 Bravo, which are the weapons sergeants. Uh, and I signed into group the beginning of 2010. Let's go back to selection. We just breeze through all that. So selection, can you give a brief description of what sure. selection actually is for for people that aren't that familiar with the top, with the uh, pipeline? Yeah, yeah. Um, Special Forces um, assessment and selection, you know, it's it's what it sounds like. It's really the, the chance for the cadre to determine if the individual has the foundational character traits and physical capabilities to be trained into a Green Beret. That's How it. long is that process? When I went, it was 14 days. It's 14 days? I think now it's closer to 20. Okay. 2021, it's fluctuated as they've kind of played around with it a little bit. Uh, immediately before I went, it was 20 days. And I want to say I was the second or third class after they had cut it down by a week, down to 14. And you would think that that meant that they just removed six, seven days worth of stuff. But what they really did was just sandwich it into a 14-day period as opposed to a 21-day period. Oh, wow. So the downtime that you would have in between evolutions and iterations basically disappeared. Um, and they ran it that way for a while. And I think that over time, the data showed that it was just slightly too aggressive of an op tempo for that amount of time uh, and they were breaking dudes off unnecessarily that would be viable candidates great candidates because um, it may have just been a little too much yeah it was a lot um, and what that looks like is it there's a lot of physical assessments um, some even basic just your basic army physical fitness test a variety of other physical tests um, it's heavy on rucking Right, you have a rucksack on your back most of the time, which is kind of connected to the SF lineage of being entirely self-sufficient and requiring minimal, if any, support to conduct operations. Like you have what you can carry in on your body, so they really, they really amplify that uh, based on historic operations and the way we oftentimes do conduct operations. And then, um, and it's really leadership heavy as well. Is okay. what they're evaluating on is leadership, and not solely one's ability to effectively lead once you are put in that position, because that those positions will rotate day to day. You know, you're, now you're you're in charge, you're in charge, you're in charge for this thing. Um, not only your ability to lead, but also your ability to support a leader. Um, two very different things, and so they're looking at your your abilities to do that. And then lastly, I'll just say on the, on the more technical side, uh, land navigation is a, is a big portion of that. Can you navigate dismounted cross-country on foot at night with nothing more than a map, a compass, and a protractor? Yeah. yeah. Man, that's, um, that's pretty smart that they're looking at how can you support a leader. I've, I've not heard anybody else doing that. And uh, 
or maybe they're doing that and I just never picked it up, but I think that would be definitely beneficial for, sure. for no. all branches. But what, when you say, what, what, would they just create a scenario for you as a leader? And what would that scenario look like to see? I mean, if they're assessing how you're going to lead, how yeah. would they do that? I'll just say that they do take a chunk of time where they group the students and the candidates together to work as a unit and solve problems under extreme physical and mental mental duress. Okay. Um, problems that are, I'll go ahead and say, unsolvable. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't take much time to recognize that as a candidate. Like what you just tasked us to do is as close to impossible as it gets. I know that. Therefore, okay, I see what like this really is about here. It's not about can I get from point A to point B successfully within the allotted time. It's about how do we interact as a unit during that process, knowing that what we're trying to do is not going to happen. Very interesting. Yeah. How many guys were in selection, roughly? My class had around 300. 300? Around 300 um, that started on day one. And I want to say around 90 made it to the end. And then out of that 90, they actually selected maybe 40, 45. Holy shit. So it's a pretty high attrition rate. Yeah. I was not expecting that number. Yeah. 300 guys. Wow. Yeah. What, what did you find to be the, the toughest portion? The toughest portion... Well, for one, on the physical side, I did not properly plan for nor deal with my feet. Foot hygiene is a very real thing. And it's not just keeping them clean, like bathing your body, but keeping them in working condition. I, my uh, stubbornness and uh, immaturity as blisters would begin I just kind of put on this, like, let's just suck it up and keep going forward kind of thing. Uh, you know, strong ranger versus smart ranger. And yeah. I, I let it get to the point where it almost forced the cadre to remove me from training uh, because my blisters on, the, on, my, on my little pinky toes were so badly infected and raw that the medic took a look at them and was like, I may have to remove you. So just... Improper planning, uh, failure to recognize the need to like take care of this machine that is my body, keep it in working condition. Same way I take care of my rifle, I need to be taking care of my body. Uh, so the the pain and discomfort at that point, this is towards the end, w was quite high. I brought that on myself. And then from a leadership perspective, we talked about that was challenging for me as well. Um, you know, being an aggressive, like dominant type personality, when you see what you firmly believe right looks like and someone else sees it differently, I had struggled with accepting that, hmm. right? So in terms of being evaluated as your ability as a leader and your ability to lead, but then conversely, your abilities to effectively support and enable and influence a leader, I struggled on, on that side of the house where I was like, no, the, the, that's wrong. I'm right and you're wrong, and I know that. So like, let's get to the finish line. 
Yeah. Like I was like, we can do this um, if we do what I think is right. And, you know, that's just, that's just not the case. Um, so that, that, that was a struggle uh, for me. But at Lodge, man, it, uh, I thought it would be worse than it was. Really? I thought it would be worse than it was. I think I just put it on such a high pedestal that it was in this kind of unrealistic stratosphere of pain and suffering and difficulty. Um, it just didn't lead up to how challenging I thought it was going to be. Interesting. No. How many how many guys did you go through that with? Like, um, Did you have any friends that were in there with you? And did they make it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, actually, some guys that I was even in basic training with were in my selection class. It was a real small group because, like I said, Sopsy, they only plucked like five or six or seven of us from that class early. I knew all of those guys um, because we had been together the entire time from basic to airborne to Fort Bragg to Sopsy. And now we left early to go to selection. So I did know a handful of dudes. And I want to say all of them were selected at the end. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. I think so. Yeah. It's real impressive. Well, Nick, let's take a quick break, and then when we get back, let's uh, go into the Q course and what that was like. Let's and do it. How you got through that. Cool. When my wife and I started planning to start a family, we took care of everything. The nursery, our wills, our power of attorney, literally everything. Or so we thought. The one thing we forgot about was life insurance. It was something that just sounded like a lot more work for us and time that we didn't have to spend on it. That's where Fabric comes in. Fabric makes getting a great term life insurance policy for your family quick, easy, and believe it or not, surprisingly affordable. The best part is Fabric does it all online, saving you time. Fabric was built by parents for parents, so they really know how important your time is as a family. Do you have 10 minutes? Sure you do. It takes less than that to apply, see your quote, and personalize your quote to fit your family's needs. Fabric also has a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Protect your family's financial future with Fabric. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com Sean. That's meetfabric.com slash Sean. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash Sean. Fabric insurance agency policy is issued by Vantus Life. Not available in New York and Montana. Prices are subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, Nick, we're back from the break. You just graduated, or not graduated, got selected. Is that, is that correct? Yep. Got selected, and now you're going to the Q course. So let's pick up right there. Yeah. Q course, at the time when I went through, you would go down uh, to Camp McCall from Bragg proper for a, you know, a chunk of time for whatever phase you were in, and that could be you know a couple weeks, two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, nine, whatever, and then you would come back to brag and just kind of be in a holding pattern until the next phase initiated. Um, and uh, and that's what that looked like. So I mean, it ended up taking maybe a year, a little over a year. And at the time that I went through, 
scratching through my memory, you kind of begin with kind of a leadership training phase that I believe, actually I'm certain, I forget what it was called, but um, it's what qualified you to become uh, an NCO was the first thing that you did. So to be an SF, it's all, it's, it's, an, it's an 18 series in SF, to be an SF guy, a team guy, they're all, it's a, all NCOs. So regardless of your rank, when you start the Q course, you will graduate the Q course as a sergeant. So the first phase of that was that kind of collective leadership training or whatever they called it, kind of NCO professional development level two, whatever it is, to credential you to become uh, an NCO on the back end of the Q course. That was the first phase for us. Um, this is again, back when I went through. And then um, I believe the next phase was small unit tactics which kind of mirrors like a ranger school style where you conduct squad and platoon ops as a, as a unit. You're in the field for seven, eight weeks. And then after that, I believe is when we went to see a school, um, survive, evade, resist, escape. Uh, that course, we went to that. And then I believe after that, we went to language training. What's so, your language? My language now is Persian Farsi. My language in the Q course was Russian. Do you speak both? I would say I have a working knowledge of Farsi. My Russian has since gone almost completely away. Well, you might need that soon. Possibly. <laughs> I may have to get back into the books. I don't know why I'm laughing, but... <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, that could come in handy. Maybe it's like riding a bike. I don't know. <laughs> See if I can't pick it back up. So language, uh, which for the more difficult languages like your Arabic or your Mandarin or your Russian, it was six months in language school. For the easier languages, Spanish, French, your know, like Latin-based languages, I believe they went to for like four months. Okay, um, but you go through language phase. Every eighteen series guy or girl. Um, has to be language qualified. That's like one of the most critical skill sets of an 18 series is to be able to speak uh, a, a native language based on your area of operation. So uh, six months of Russian. And then after that was Robin Sage, which is kind of the final culmination exercise uh, within the Q course, which still exists now. And it's, um, you, they create an actual SFODA with 12 individuals. Um, actually, I'm sorry, I forgot my MOS phase was in there as well, uh, which I was an 18 Bravo, which are the weapon sergeants. So that was like a 13, 14 week POI that you go through to actually learn your job. So once you get to Robin Sage at the end, they put together an actual ODA with the actual MOSs, the way an actual team is built. And that's the first time that you really get to experience these other skill sets. Because up to that point, you're just kind of in these stovepipes as a general candidate or you're learning a specific job. You get to Sage, and now you have an actual team leader, an actual captain. You have the combo guys. You have the medics. You have the engineers that are all on that team, um, which was really kind of cool. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. We were actually able to see what these guys can do, like what they learned. And we're actually able to employ it. Yeah. You know, those combo skills. 
those demo skills, those medical skills, even for just something as small as we're doing, you know, our initial infill, which is typically hell, uh, where you're, you know, you're rucking over a hundred pounds to get it to your operational area. And, uh, you know, you're cramping or you got to twist an ankle or something. And then like a medic shows up and prior to that point, we had never experienced that, you know, Oh, like someone's like medic, you know, and like an actual dude shows like a, a medic shows up. So at one point I was cramping and overcomes our medic and he actually like knows medicine. He's like, okay. I'm like, wow, you guys are really a thing. Okay, cool. So it starts to feel <laughs> you real. You do exist. Yeah, you guys do exist. This is a real thing. And you so you kind of experience in for the first time what an ODA brings to the table because you got all these, you know, advanced skills within each individual. Um and then that, that's the end of the Q course, man. Graduate, don your beret, and then to the team you go. So I got a couple questions about Q course. So if if you can't answer them, great. If not, I totally understand. But so you said you graduated or you got selected with about 40 out of 300 guys. Something like that. Is, are they, after every selection, is that who is in your Q course or do they, is it more? Is it more selections? Do you know what I'm saying? I do, yeah. And at the time that I went through, when you had those, those areas of white space, those gaps in between phases, it was so that other candidates that were coming into the Q course w would arrive and then you could get enough bodies to put into that next phase. So for example, like when we needed to go into SUT, small unit tactics, we would go in, I think it was like 80 or so students okay. that would go in at a single time. So you'd have more guys that had just come out of selection or the phase prior to that. But then you'd also be losing guys along the way, guys that didn't make it through the previous phase. So guys were coming and then guys were going throughout the duration of my Q course experience. Some oh, would obviously okay. stay really? with you. Those that just went straight through without any issues. But you know, injuries happen where guys have to have to recycle a certain phase or guys just flat out get dropped from the course for whatever reason. Um, so it is, it is a little bit of a revolving door where people are coming and going. But I, I had, you know, a good group of dudes that I was with from the very beginning that I ended up graduating with. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> with the, with the, with your job specific training, you're an 18 Bravo weapons guy. Mm -hmm. Or, and I think you said, did, how long is that? I want to say when I went through, it was maybe 13, 14 weeks. So are all the different jobs, all the different areas of expertise, are they all that same length? So you guys jump back in for Robin Sage together? All except for the uh, medics, okay. which was about twice as long. The medical, the for the medic, their MOS phase, I want to say it was like 12 months or nine months long. So the rest of the groups would be continuing to advance while the medics that you started MOS phase together were still in MOS phase as you're pushing past to the okay. next phases. Um, but then also language was thrown in there too. So some of them are six month courses, some of them were four month courses. So by the time you get to the back end of that, now you've got different bodies. Yeah. Because each phase could be diff a different length depending on the MOS and the language that you were learning. Shit, this program is a lot longer than I had uh, originally thought. Well, now it's much different. 
um, I want to say maybe three years ago, they optimized the Q course. And uh, it's much more streamlined now where that those gaps that existed in between phases have been drastically reduced, where they're, they're intentionally giving guys enough time to rest and recover, but then they're not waiting for the next group to be able to catch up. So guys are going through the course now almost as a single entity the entire time unless someone gets dropped for some reason. Okay. So now it's much more streamlined, and the likelihood of you starting and ending with the same faces is much more likely than it was when I went through. Okay. Did you guys lose a lot of guys in, in the, Q, in the course? Q course? We did, and that's kind of one of the things that, that has shifted with the Q course is, you know, when I went through, there were a whole variety of different gates that you needed to successfully complete. In a lot of ways, it was a, you know, 12, 18-month assessment and selection because there were a lot of different times when you didn't meet the standard and you would have been removed. Um, now, the Q course is looked at more so as a training course where you're there to learn. You're, we've done the assessment and selection on you already. That's what selection's for. We've determined that you have the character traits and physical capacity to be molded into an entry-level Green Beret, and we will do that through the qualification course where we will teach you the foundational aspects of being an SF guy. So it's, it's the attrition rate now in the Q course is much lower than or higher than it was when I went through. We, we lost more dudes in the Q course when I went through than is lost now. Interesting yeah. how things are evolving. With your weapons training, what can we go into that a little bit? Yeah. What? So what is a daily, what, what are you doing there? Is it sniper school? Is it, or are you going through all these different weapon systems and, and, and you're just becoming an expert on all of them? Yeah, I mean, expert's certainly a strong word, um, but you do gain kind of an entry-level knowledge of uh, the majority of the weapon systems that we're going to use that are organic to an ODA and or the ones that we would be working with in country alongside of a partner force. So for a variety of different small arms, both um, domestic and foreign, um, sniper systems, crew serve weapon systems, uh, sniper systems, and then indirect systems such as like mortars. So you get kind of a baseline understanding of how they function, um, how to troubleshoot them, and then how to incorporate them into training. So the Bravos, while well, the Bravo section, the Bravos themselves are kind of your weapons experts on how they how they work and how to keep them working. Uh, they're also the their primary support function on the team is that of training and operations. So actually planning and executing training okay. as well. So they do give you an introduction into what that looks like, how to actually set up a training event and then also incorporate all these different weapon systems that we're teaching you how to how to use. If you wanted to go to sniper school, so you're not going becoming a sniper during that no. time. So say if a communications guy wanted to go to sniper school once he once he was accepted into the ODA, mm -hmm. would he be able to or did they only take Bravos? He absolutely could. He could. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, oftentimes we get kind of pigeonholed based on our, our MOS 
on what advanced skills is best suited for that individual. There's an argument to be made that if you're a weapons guy, you already have a found a solid foundation understanding of how weapon systems work. Sending that dead dude to sniper school makes a lot of sense because it's obviously it's a weapon. Let's not let's advance this guy's skill set. Um, but also, there's an argument to be made to send someone else to bring them more up to speed on how weapon systems at large work. Um, and also, if this dude's operating the mortar, he can't be operating a sniper rifle. Mm-hmm. So let's get someone else that knows how to operate that sniper rifle. So we'll send our, you know, our combo guy to sniper school. Um, you'll see the same type of argument uh, when it comes to going to become a JTAC, like get JTAC certified, right? A lot of times it makes sense to send your your combo guy to go become a JTAC because he's familiar with operating radio systems. Yeah, and that's what JTACs use. Um, you could also have the same the same argument the other way saying if this guy's managing comms at large for the commander or for the element maybe it's best to get someone else who knows how to operate a radio who's then able to do jtackery while our echo while our combo guy is managing kind of general comm systems so essentially you are not limited by what advanced skills that you can obtain based on your current MOS okay what other what other jobs are there? What other specialties are there? We got weapons guy, communications guy. On the ODA? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so you got your team leader, your detachment commander, which is a captain, so your officer. You've got an assistant detachment commander, which is filled by a warrant officer, which is what my position is. Um, you have your team sergeant, which is your senior enlisted leader, your highest ranking enlisted guy, who really runs the team. Like he runs the boys, all the, all the NCOs in the team. They answer to that man. Um, you have your intelligence sergeant, which is not one that you can obtain in the qualification course. That's something that you would do after the fact. You then have your uh, your weapons guys, your combo guys, your engineers, which focus on both building things and then blowing things up. Um, so demo. Okay, so that would be a breacher. They would be the subject matter expert in breaching, and uh, their job is to create breachers on the team. Okay. Um, and then you have your combo guys. So that's the just kind of general breakdown of your of your NCOs, your weapons, or your medics. So your medics. weapons, your combo, your engineer, and your medics. Uh, there's two per team, a senior and a junior, and then you've got one um, intel dude. You've got one um, assistant detachment commander, one team sergeant, and one captain to make up the 12. Okay. So you finish up Q course. What's graduation like? <laughs> you know, it's a historic moment, right, for, for every SF guy. It's something that you've been dreaming about, putting this little green hat on your head uh, for multiple years, probably. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's exciting. It's like thrilling. And then very quickly after that, you realize that you're back at the bottom of, a, of another massive mountain and a lot of uncertainty. It's like things just got real, man. Like you're no longer a student. You're no longer a candidate. You're the guy. And you knock on that team room door for the first time, nervous, not knowing what to expect. And, uh, and then real work begins yeah. yeah what 
what is being so close with your dad, with your old man, what was his reaction when you told him, Hey, I've, I've made it through this pipeline. I'm going, it's, I'm done. Yeah. Thrilled. You know, he was he booked his, his flight to, to Fort Bragg for my graduation, probably before anybody else. And, uh, extraordinarily proud. That's and then awesome. also nervous, man, you know, because now things are getting real. You know, and when you're going through that pipeline, or really any pipeline within SOF, there's a chance that you don't, they don't make it through the other end. You know, it could happen to anybody. And uh, I think he was confident that I would be successful, but there's still that, you know, that degree of uncertainty on whether or not my son's actually going to go to Afghanistan as a Green Beret. There's a level of uncertainty. You've done that. You've done that little green half for the first time, and now you know it's going to happen. So as proud as he was in that moment, I'm sure that he would tell you that he was also equally petrified. Yeah. So you go to the what? What ODA do you go to? I went to um, an ODA in First Battalion, Third Group. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any choice in where you're going, or it's just Manning? This is where you're going. Yeah, that's it. And you, you know, you show up to group for the first time, especially as an X-ray. I had never even been on like a real like unit compound before. You just kind of meandering around, lost. You get a little bit of guidance, like go check in at the, you know, the CQ desk up front, and they'll get you squared away. But you get this list of in-processing requirements. When I showed up, my entire company was forward in Afghanistan, so there was just a few kind of rear detachment guys that were around um, that I I linked up with on my first day, and they're like, all right, go you know go through all the the different sections and in-process, and uh, I'm like, okay. So I have no idea what any of these things are. Like, I got to go to S1, S2, S3. I'm like, what is that? What is that? And uh, so I'm just kind of meandering around, getting getting familiar with the area. Um, and I was met my sergeant major, and he told me, you know, the entire company is forward right now, uh, minus one team. And they only have about a month left. So we have a couple options here. One is I can wait until these guys get back and then they're going to go into a reset phase and I can put you on one of those teams or I can put you on this other team that's here now, that's set to go over and it was like four or five months. Oh, wow. And I said, okay. And you asked if you had a choice and I really I really didn't like initially, but once I got to the company level, he brought this to my attention and he's like, the team that is here, they're a unique team. Um, they don't do what like the other ODAs do. They're different. And it's not uh, a, a good fit for everybody. And I said, okay, I had no idea what this guy was talking about. Um, like I came to group, you know, to kick down doors and shoot bad guys in the face. Like that's what I wanted to do. And that's what most of the teams did. This team was, was a little different. So he's like, go over and talk to the team sergeant and uh, see if it's a good fit. And I said, okay, I had no idea what to expect. So I do that. And this particular ODA, which is why they deployed on an off cycle from the rest of the company, um, was because of their actual, their mission, right? And rather than being a direct action focused ODA, which is what just about all of our ODAs in third group were doing, focused on um, 
which you talk about kind of the lineage we talked about earlier of the OSS and kind of where SF came from. Those guys weren't the ones that were, you know, raiding machine gun bunkers. Those guys were the ones that were facilitating those that would be coming in to do that. Preparation of the environment is one of the SF missions that, um, that this particular team focused on. So I still didn't quite grasp all of that at that time. I just knew that these guys were the next guys out the door yeah. and I wanted to go. So Team Sarge and I kicked it off. You know, we were good. He's like, you know, I'd like you on this team if you want to come do this. And uh, I said, yeah, let's do it. You know, so my first deployment to Afghanistan in early 2011 was, um, was on a unique team that was comprised of entirely senior, senior SF, SF guys that spent a lot of time on kind of more of your traditional SFODA and then migrated over to do these types of activities um, later in their careers. Here I come in as a brand new Cherry E5 X-ray with no experience in anything and I'm surrounded by dudes that are on their, you know, seventh, eighth combat deployment. Uh, a lot of upsides to that. A lot of experience and knowledge for me to attempt to consume. But the bar was also raised really high as this young dude who really didn't know much. Yeah. And um, it was a nine-month rotation. And I'll pause here for in a second. But I'll just say that I was... Fortunate to be put in that position because although I was having to outpace my headlights the entire trip and I was drinking through a fire hose, because of the type of team it was, I was exposed to such a wide range of what SFODAs are capable of doing. All the way from, you know, getting into an armored gun truck with machine gun barrels sticking out everywhere, you know, in multicams to go do that kind of thing, to being in a soft skin Corolla you know, driving through downtown Kandahar and then everything kind of in between. So it was a lot to try to take in and process. But uh, I'm fortunate to have been in that position because it opened up my aperture quite a bit from a very early stage in my career to what ODAs can actually do. I think this is one, uh, I don't know if you remember, we were co-located together mm-hmm. uh, once. Is this, is that... Was that your first deployment? Yeah. Okay. Can I mention where it was? Yeah, I think oh, so. Spin Bulldog? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, which is small. I forgot that we had mentioned yeah. that before. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was your first deployment? Yep. No shit. Mm-hmm. We were split um, between Spin and then uh, downtown Kandahar. Our team was. Where'd you like going most <sighs> on that deployment? I think I... I spent most of my time down at Spin. Um, I'll, I'll say that we had a like a really great compound. Our living conditions were <laughs> unbelievable, uh, which set me up for failure. You know, not to fast forward too far, but once I, I only did that one trip with that team, and then I switched um, when we got back, and I went to a DA team, and then my subsequent rotation was, you know, doing VSO up in the mountains with nothing. But my first trip was real cush. Like we all had our own chew. I had, you know, a full size bed. I had air conditioning, um, great food, a couple different gyms to choose from. It was like, oh, this is, 
this is great. Like, this is the way you guys live. This isn't living off the land, right? Yeah. I'm not having to catch snakes and eat them for dinner. Like, I got a chow hall right there. This is beautiful. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the way I lived uh, for nine months. And then the rude awakening happened, you know, the following year once I went to a different team. Well, so I'm, I'm really curious if you can go into it because I, I remember shooting the show with you a couple times, but you guys were like fucking hermits. There. I we never saw you. I don't think you really saw us either. But but because um, of back, I don't know if it's gotten any better. But nobody likes sharing information with mm-hmm. other organizations, which I think is ridiculous. Yeah. But that's my opinion. But what were you guys? What were you guys into down there? Yeah, it, it starts to get uh, pretty sensitive pretty quick, man. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, let's. We'll fast forward then, since that's so sensitive. And um, so you come back, you go to another team. Yep. How long are you home for? I was home for maybe six months, seven months. Um, But I really wasn't home much in terms of my head on my own pillow. I dove directly into advanced schools and, and training um, ended up going back overseas once during that time period and then came back. So I want to say it was around seven, eight months that I was, I was not deployed in a combat environment. Um, or at least I was not on a combat rotation is probably the best way to say that. Uh, but I wasn't home much, man. I was, I was obsessed with just being the best SF guy I could be and nothing else really mattered to me much than that. So if I wasn't in a school, you know, I'm in the weight room or I'm on the track or I'm in the fight house or I'm reading training manuals um, because I knew where we were going back to. So I just wanted to go completely all in on that. Makes sense. You know, so you were home for eight months. Something like that. Go right back out the door. That's yeah. not long. I mean, where did you go? That was quick. Yeah. So my second, um, my second combat pump now on this new team, DA focused team, was in uh, late 2012, and then uh, we went to Wardak Province, which is historically uh, known for its heavy fighting. So we got the mission we wanted, got exactly what we wanted. Uh, three teams went in along the, the Chalk Valley in Wardak to uh, to conduct our operations, and at the time we were doing. A lot of teams were doing VSO, which stands for Village Stability Operations, a term which has since gone away, um, and one that makes a lot of sense conceptually. And the idea behind VSO is, is you go into these areas to link up with your partner force and conduct operations with these guys, but you can't build up massive infrastructure. You can't build a FOB. You have to live and operate within the conditions that they live and operate within, mostly so that when we transition out, we don't leave behind something that is unsustainable for them. So let's keep the footprint very small. Let's mimic what they do and how they do it, and then build them up based on their abilities to build and grow, rather than coming in and setting up massive um towers and walls and gates and like all this force pro stuff that won't exist when you leave that makes a hell of a lot of sense 
It does make a lot of sense. Um, and we loved it. It was like the most authentic SF mission that we could get. It's like, perfect. Like, this is living off of the land. This is living. This is us assimilating to our environment and our partners. And then organically and and bilaterally building that up together to whatever degree is sustainable for them. Makes a lot of sense. The, the downside, the risk that comes with that is something that can't be ignored because if it's just you guys at a very small footprint and you don't have this infrastructure to rely on for your own personal security, uh, it exposes you to be vulnerable in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but we got, that's exactly what we wanted, man. You know, we got exactly what we wanted. Uh, and that turned out to be, you know, just a wildly different type of deployment than my previous one, where rather than living in a, in a, in a chew with the heat and air conditioning in a, in a full bed with a television, you know, I'm, my, my living quarters is this old half blown out semi structured hunk of clay that I'm able to try to like tuck my head underneath it. And like, that's where I lived Yeah. until we built up something that was, um, you know, more suited for us, both for us and for them. Was, were all three teams co-located at the exact same spot? No, okay. no, no. We were pre-positioned, um, kind of in a triangle, uh, two on one side of the valley and one on the far side. And, uh, we really just had each other to support each other for operations. You know, there was a, there was a large surface to air threat in the area at the time. So they were real hesitant in terms of resupply the frequency into the scale of what they could safely fly in for us. So you're talking like LCLA, like type resupply drops, speed balls coming by quick. Like that's how we were resupplied. Uh, the occasional convoy would come out, but they would almost always just get obliterated with IEDs. Damn. That it just became a point. It was like, we can't afford to do this. But you know what? This is why we have ODAs. Like you guys can thrive in these environments yeah so in a kind of a sick way even just after a couple months we almost wanted like less support like leave us alone like we will take care of this ourselves um and just the three odas really mutually supported each other most of the time so we conduct an op they'd be our qrf they do one we'd be their qrf so we just kind of coordinated with each other obviously through higher um, how we would kind of stagger different ops so that we one of us was around to come in if we needed to for the other one. Wow. How how many Indige guys were roughly were you guys with running? Yeah, so that trip, we were partnered up with uh, an, a, an ANASF team, so Afghan National Army Special Forces Detachment, which we built to mimic exactly what an SFODA looks like. Same okay. MOSs, same breakdown, carbon copy, so 12 of those guys. And we lived together in the same blown out area that we had as our camp. We lived together. Um, when it came time to run different ops, depending on a variety of variables, more than likely the, the threat or the size of the objective, we would bring in uh, conventional Afghan elements from the Afghan Security Forces elements. So standard Army, uh, Afghan National Army guys Afghan national police guys. At that point, there was an Afghan local police force that was also in the area. So at any given moment, when we would be conducting ops and or training, we would be getting dudes that were coming in from these other elements 
for uh, for us to work with. Is that is that every operation you would have these outsiders coming in? No. Did that bother you? I mean, because that's 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 a that's that can get tricky. You oh, know, a, lot, a lot of guys get you know they tip off Taliban, tip off Al Qaeda. Yep. Did that happen? Uh, yeah, yeah, it did. Um, it of course made us nervous anytime we would be bringing in these outside units. Um, it's one thing when you're living amongst someone, uh, you know the the threat is mitigated even just because you're geographically co-located with them 24 hours a day. These other guys, you have no idea yeah. where they're going, who they're talking to. You know, to say that the Afghan security forces uh, lacked corruption would be a drastic understatement. Yeah, you know, so it certainly increased the risk to us by bringing some of these entities in. Um, so based on the objective, the need for additional bodies was certainly at the beginning of that. Do we need more humans to conduct this op? But you also can't ignore the need to uh, enable and increase rapport and capability amongst the partner force at large, which is you know, what ODAs really do. Like we're we're trainers and advisors. We're warriors, and we can go in the door when we need to. But when you, you really put an ODA someplace is because we're force multipliers, right? So there was, I want to say, pressure for us to incorporate some of these more conventional elements. But um, there were times when it was mandated that we would roll with other elements. Even just, I remember, I've not had to do that. I've been co-located, but it's always been, you, know, you guys were always there first and it, it, and it, it built a team and maybe we took over or, or, or whatever. But I remember hearing a lot of different, a lot of times that, that Green Berets co-located with the partner force. You know, guys were getting killed, you know, mm-hmm. Terp, interpreters are killing you guys. Guys on the team were killing you guys. Were you were you worried about that? Did that happen yet? It had happened, um, and during you know during that time frame, this is now 2012. The insider attack threat was considered to be the greatest threat that we dealt with. Really, as ODAs, yeah. Um, I I saw firsthand what that what that looks like. Yeah, you know and. Um, at the time, I felt like, especially as a Bravo, who's one of one of our primary responsibilities is base defense. Uh, I felt like we had sound TTPs, SOPs, systems in place to mitigate these threats. Uh, I was wrong, and there were gaps, and we paid some heavy costs because of that. We've learned from them since, but... The reality is, is there's there's no way to eliminate that threat from happening, regardless of how many dudes you're working alongside of or where they're coming from. The reality is, SFODAs go in and we work with indigenous personnel. That's like our that's our job, man. Um, so there are certainly techniques and practices to reduce those threats, but it's you are going to take on that risk if you want to do. Yeah. You know this kind of work. Yeah, 
How much work were you guys getting there? How much were you going out? How much? How many hits were you doing? Just about every day. Every day. Yeah, every every day is strong. Um, if we, we we would reset as we needed based on how difficult or how taxing the previous hop may have been, but multiple times a week for the duration of the deployment, and most of which uh, we encounter contact on most of them. Sometimes multiple times a day. Multiple times a day. Oh yeah. Wow. That's a lot of that's a lot of work. What, like I said, I, I know it's sensitive, but what what kind of what were you guys targeting? What were you looking for? So, our, 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 one of our primary objectives, again, keep in mind this is 2011. Um, one of our primary object, objectives was to open up white space to allow some freedom of movement for our conventional forces to begin to work towards extraction. Um, so opening up roadways and creating a white space bubble of a reduced threat so some of these entities could get to places like Bagram um, or Kandahar or be able to get to a place to get out of country. Right, 2011, we had decided, and we were at least looking at, drastically scaling down um, in the future, like in the coming months. So we needed to create uh, a bubble and within our, within our area. When we first got there, there was no bubble. I mean, we got there in the middle of the night, like 2 a.m., got dropped off on a Chinook, set up patrol-based style living situation, complete unknown environment. No team, we didn't rip with a team. We were the first team to go to this location. No shit. Yeah, first team at this location. Uh, so there's nothing there. Uh, the team, there was a team on the ground that was physically there, but they had just got there two days prior or a day prior just to meet the logistics to start pulling them out. So it was like a high five kind of thing. Um, a couple of their dudes stayed back, a couple of their leaders, senior guys stayed back to give us like a laydown of the land that they knew of for having only been there for like 48 hours. But it was uninhabited prior to us really coming in. So we're there, I think maybe we were there two or three days before we even left our little our little area. And I will never I'll never forget. I think we had like a full like a four or five truck convoy uh, and a couple raises, a couple side by sides. And I was in the trail vehicle. And my vehicle didn't even get onto the road and we were in contact. Oh wow. So and I'm like, is this seriously happening? Right now, so we they literally dropped us in the middle of a of a hornet's nest with no white space, no freedom of movement, and our one of our primary missions was to expand that us and the other two ODAs along that valley to allow some maneuverability for some of these other units, pr primarily to give them an option to evac out of country. Holy shit! So you had, wow! So right off the bat, it's on. Right off the bat. Like, welcome to the show. Yeah. And it's kind of that holy shit moment. Uh, but then also, the this is exactly where we want to be right now. So, How often were you guys taking contact? Basically, every time we went out 
Um, most times we went out, at least for the first half of the trip. First three months, um, we were taking contact just about every time we left our camp. Um, but then the winter came in, you know, January time frame comes in. And when you're at that altitude, the snow is epic. So yeah. things, everyone kind of takes a time out, right? You've heard the term, the fighting season, right? So like at that point of time, really no one can move when there's nine feet of snow on the ground and you're in the mountains. So we did kind of go into this six, eight week kind of like hibernation phase from, you know, call it January uh, through February-ish timeframe. But up until that point, it was uh, it was busy. Anytime we, just about any time we left, we were, uh, we were being engaged. How did and that first contact feel? It feel good? On that rotation? Yeah. That's the first time you'd been in contact, correct? No. Um, I was in some prior. Okay. Um, when I was in the year before. Um, so it wasn't my first time, but it was certainly was my first time with that level of frequency. You know, there was a couple things that we experienced the year before, but we weren't, that trip, we weren't uh, designed to be in those types of fights. It just happened. That trip, um, it became normal, right? But so I think just like a, a, a an awakening that this is real and you're about to get everything that you ever wanted or thought you wanted, yeah. you know, out of being on a team doing this kind of thing. What was the, what was kind of the, the um, would you guys pursue the thread or would you break contact what was what was the deal that yeah man you know the 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 term it depends is is used a lot man it's probably the most accurate most of the time we would go into fire maneuver and we would advance um you know the term the bearded ones was one that was used in afghanistan for a really long time and that term was referencing soft guys yeah like guys that were able to grow beards and your conventional guys for a while if not the entire time they were there were doing the army thing right and they would if they would engage a standard army or military convoy most of the time they would kind of circle the wagons deal with the threat maybe call in some support and then re button up and then move well they started realizing that if you engage the bearded ones those, those guys are going to come after you so just know what you're getting yourself into. Um, so most of the time we would we would advance on whatever the threat was. Uh, obviously, if you're dealing with some kind of a TST on an objective that you need to get to, then the commander leadership would make that call, like we're breaking contact so we can continue to Charlie Mike over to what we really need to do today. So you'd see, you know, you'd see both. Uh, when you guys were taking contact or when you'd walk into an ambush like that, what how many how many guys was it on average? Was it was it the you know, you get everything over there. You get the local farmer who's just trying to get his jihad on sure. with an AK, then you all the way up to a full blown coordinated ambush. What no. what was typical? I'd say um typical would probably be five, six guys. Five, six guys. Yeah. If I had to put a number on it, we, of course, would get the random pop shot from the dude, you know, blah, 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 and then he'd take off and whatever. Um, some larger, more coordinated ones, 
12, 15 um, okay. individuals. I'd say, I'd say if I put a norm on it, I'd say probably like five or six is what we'd see on any, within any particular engagement. Okay. Man, like how the hell did you guys even, I mean, you get dropped off in the middle of Afghanistan. How do you find Indige motivated enough that believes in the cause to, I mean, how do you build a team out of nothing? Where do you find these guys? Yeah, so on that trip, we, we didn't need to find, recruit, and build our partner force. Okay. They existed prior to us. The team that was operating in another location for their entire rotation were partnered up with the ANASF team that they handed over to us. So those guys were mounted. They drove to our location. They were there a couple days. We came in. They handed over all their equipment to us and their SF team, their ANASF team, to us. Um, and that's who we ran with. Okay. And then the, the conventional units, you know, they obviously already existed at that point. They were just in different locations throughout Wardak province, and then they would move to us for whatever ops that they were coming with us on. Okay. So we didn't have to go through the, like, find, recruit, like, validate, vet, train, like that, and early phase zero, phase one, you know, UW campaign style stuff we didn't have to do those types of activities because we had a bond force already how long would the typical engagement last <sighs> typical engagement maybe an hour an hour maybe an hour yeah T you know typical some again much shorter you know pop 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 we return fire everything goes quiet we're good let's just move on some hours um, where, you know, dudes are just digging in and they're not, they're not stopping. Yeah. You know, more coordinated ambushes, coordinated attacks, uh, usually reinforced with an IED or two or 10. Those could go for multiple hours. By the time we get the situation under control, you know, get medevac in if need be, get QRF on station. You know, sometimes that could, it could be a long night or a long day. Yeah. Anything about this deployment that stands out in particular? Uh, well, the way it ended, which was the result of not only me ultimately ended up losing my leg, but uh, much more significantly, uh, our team leader was killed. Uh, our infantry squad uplift squad leader was killed. We had a, a squad of infantry guys that were there to support us, uh, mostly for base defense stuff, but we got to a point where we were bringing them out on some ops. Uh, our our dog was killed. This is at the tail end of the deployment. I was wounded twice in action before that, on two different times. The first time, uh, we only been in country a few weeks. You know, I took some shrapnel to the back of my shoulder. A uh, couple. Well, months let's talk that. about that incident. Sure. What happened? Yeah. So. Um, we're, we're driving to an objective. We get ambushed. Uh, three or four of us dismount. We grab a handful of our partner force guys. We're in the maneuver element into a village. Uh, probably an aggressive maneuver at that point. We were a real small element. And I believe that was the first time we'd ever actually stepped foot in that particular village. So a lot of unknowns. Um, and as we ended up having to clear our way all the way to this two-story compound where we were taking um, heavy machine gun fire from, um, 
IDF's kind of coming in. There's they're they're cracking off mortars. Uh, grenades are going off around from us, from enemy to us. So it, this this particular village ended up being one that we went back to multiple times over the course of that trip. I think this was the first time we had actually entered into it. Realized quickly that we were in essentially a completely and totally Taliban owned and run village. Um, something exploded. We were getting ready to breach uh, the entryway into a courtyard of this structure that we were trying to get to. And um, something had blown up behind me. And things are blowing up kind of all around. And uh, I just feel the impact into the back of my shoulder. It was like someone hit me with a baseball bat. And uh, I look back and sure enough, there's like a lemon-sized hole Shit. in the back of my shoulder. And uh, it didn't really hurt. People ask, like, what's like getting shot, you know? So it didn't really hurt, you know, adrenaline's pumping up, but it's like a shock to the system when you see a hole in your body like that big. It's like, oh my God, like, am I okay? Um, and then just kind of go into medical training. Training took over at that point. One of my teammates got to me, he busts out like some gauze. He just like plugs it, wraps it up real quick. And I wanted to keep going. My team sergeant was, was with me on that element. And uh, I'm like, I'm good, let's roll. He's like, now let's, let's, uh, let's break contact, let's get back to the trucks and let's like take a look at you. I was the first guy in that deployment to be wounded. So it was, it was a shock to everybody. Our leadership was like, holy shit, someone's actually hurt for real. I certainly wasn't the last, but I was the first. So team sergeant's like, no, I don't like this. Uh, let's, let's get out of here and let's like reconsolidate and see what's going on. And I remember throwing somewhat of a childish temper tantrum right there and then. I'm like, no, man, we just, we just fought all the way to get to that door. The, they're still engaging the trucks from the structure. We're right outside the structure. Shit. Um, like, let's go. And he's like, nah, man, I don't like it. Probably the right call to make. Not because of my wound per se, but I think that we were over aggressive with where we were to begin with. And at that small of an element, exactly, you know, we were down. Yeah, would have been very detrimental. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think this may have been a blessing that my team sergeant was like, that's that's the that's the indicator that I think we need to wrap up and uh, and kind of reconfigure this thing. So, you know, get back to the trucks, mount up. My medics, one of my medics is back there. He takes a look at it. He's like, yeah, it's not that bad. You'll be okay. End up going back to the house. Um, we aborted that mission because we were on our way to an objective. So we, we canked it, went back to the house. Medic took a look at it. He's like, yeah, I want to get you medevaced and get you in front of an actual doc to take a look at this. And then I really threw a temper tantrum. Like a child in Toys R Us that didn't get his toy. I mean, like kicking and screaming. Uh, you have a lemon-sized hole in the back of your shoulder. Yeah. And, and you're throwing a temper tantrum yeah, for man. somebody to take a look at it. Yeah, I did not want to leave. I Damn. did not want to leave. I was really, really upset. Childishly upset. Um, but I did what I was told. I got on a helicopter. First time being medevaced. Get to one of our um, forward surgical teams, an FST that was located somewhat close by. They took a look at it and um, 
they're like, okay, the way we treat this is we pack this thing with this antiseptic gauze two, three times a day so that it closes from the inside out. We can't just sew it shut because it's going to leave this cavity inside your body that will fester and infection will happen. What did you get hit with? Shrapnel. Shrapnel? Yeah. Grenade would be my guess. Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I mean, imagine if it was just, you know, because yeah. it hit right here, man. Imagine if it was just a couple inches over. Probably would have been game over. So the, the initial plan was to keep me at this location, which is where our AOB leadership is located. AOB leadership is like the company level leadership. So your primary support element for the ODAs is where the, the AOB was at. And that's where this forward surgical team was located. And uh, the docs are like, well, we're going to keep you here until this thing closes to make sure that you don't get an infection. And I was like, okay, cool. And after like three days, man, I really started to get fidgety and uncomfortable. And, you know, I'm in the talk and the guys are, the guys are carrying on. They're going on ops. And for the first time, I'm watching some of this thing, some of these things happen through ISR sensors, which was a weird perspective. You know, just sitting in there in the, in the jock going, is this what, is this what, this is what we look like while we're out doing our thing? This is what we look like. I'd never seen it before. Yeah. And I'm just getting more and more frustrated day after day after day. Maybe six, seven days goes by and I've had enough. I'm at my breaking point. And uh, I grabbed one of my buddies who's on, was on the B team. And I said, bring me down to the, to the tarmac. The only way that we could get into for the team to get resupplied was for rotary wing or fixed wing to come out of Bagram. That's where they all generated from. There were no flights that were coming out of where I was located to back to where my camp was. So I needed to get to Bagram at some point to get back to the team. And after a week or so, uh, I convinced one of my buddies to drive me down to the tarmac at that base. And I went from one C-130 to another. And I think on my third one, just talking to the crew, I'm like, are any of you guys going to Bagram? And he's like, yeah, we're about to go to Bagram right now. I'm like, can I come with you? And they're like, sure. So I get on a plane and I take off to, and I land at Bagram. No one knows that I'm gone. Holy okay. shit. Yeah. <laughs> so I end up at Bagram. And I'd only been at Bagram like once before. And that was just when we first got into country. And we were there like a day. And then we were flown out to our actual site. So I really wasn't familiar with Bagram. I land at the airport. I'm like, uh, I don't know what I'm doing here. I meander my way over to the soft compound. And uh, I walk into the jock. Now this is where the SODIF is located. Like our battalion level command. I walk into the jock and... The sort of command is like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I need a, I need a flight back to my team. And he's like kind of confused. And the sort of sergeant major, my battalion command sergeant major is right there. And he's like, what? Like they're both, they're all trying to figure out what am what am I doing there? Like how did I get there? And as I'm standing there, the phone rings. And remember, I just left where my company level command was located. The phone rings, and Sergeant Major picks up the phone, and it's my company Sergeant Major. And I can hear him screaming on the other end of the phone. And he's, 
CSM's looking at me, kind of smiling. Yep, no, he's right here in front of me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, this definitely is about me. So I'm like, am I about to be like court-martial? I have no idea what's going to happen. But I know I'm in trouble. I'm like, this is about to suck. And uh, CSM hands me the phone. He's like, your Sergeant Major wants to talk to you. I'm like, it's okay. Get off my hey, Sergeant Major. He just comes completely unglued. You know, what the fuck are you doing here? What, what are you thinking? Yelling and screaming. So Roger that. Yes, Roger that, Sergeant Major. Nope, I know you're right. And then at the end of that, he's like, listen, dude, I totally, I get it, man. Like, I get it. You want to get back to your guys. Um, don't ever fucking do that again. And I'm like, Roger that. So I hang up. CSM kind of thinks it's funny. Trying to be professional, but also kind of snickering. I'm like, I need to ride back now. And uh, the doc who had made the initial decision to keep me at that base until this healed up completely, he had entered the jock. And uh, he's like, no, I told you, like, we're waiting until you're completely healed. And in that moment, right around that time, my team is out on an op and they get into an engagement. And now I'm watching it on a screen in the jock. And my team sergeant takes a round, which ended up being to his abdomen. Shit. So I'm watching this happen. These guys are reacting to contact. They're, they're in a fight. And now my team sergeant's hit. And I come completely and totally unglued in the jock in that moment, yelling, screaming, like throwing chairs, right? Like a immature temper tantrum and uh, demanding that I, someone gets me a helicopter to get me back to the guys like now. And the doc, the doc dug in, he's like, no. And then my commander was like, hey, dude, I don't, I don't know how you're gonna tell this guy no, like good luck keeping him here. So um, it was maybe a day or two later that uh, they, they put me back on a bird. I was still dealing with the wound, but I knew it was relatively easy to treat. You know, my medics were more than capable of packing this thing twice a day themselves. Yeah. So I didn't think that there was a real risk to me, my health. Uh, and they, you know, they, they saw it that way with a little convincing from me, just kind of flipping out. But uh, I was back with the guys after that and then right back to right back to work. Damn. You know? So then it was just, you know, two, three times a day, they're packing this thing. We're going out on ops. You know, I'd bleed through the bandage, whatever. I just like, we just kind of managed it. It wasn't, it really wasn't that big of a deal that went on for another couple of weeks and then it was closed up and then, you know, we were good. And then right around that time is when I was wounded for the second time. First time was in September. Um, we infilled in September. This happened in September. And then in November was when I was wounded for the second time, right around the time my shoulder had closed up, mostly anyway. Uh, I ended up taking an AK-47 round to the side of my face. Jesus. Yeah. And um, sounds a lot worse than it is. So you hear someone say, like, I got shot in the face. You imagine that if they're talking to you, like half their face would be, you know, removed. Mine, it just grazed my cheek. And uh, the, the quick story is, you know, we're coming back from, a, from an op. Let's do the long story. Okay. Coming back from an op, I'm in the trail vehicle. Lead vehicle has my detachment commander in it and uh, some other dudes, and they hit estimated three, 400 pound IED. Decimates this Matt V, right? And all I see is the truck. I'm working out of a hatch, so I'm up with the visual above the vehicle. Hear the boom. 
truck is airborne. Just picked this thing up and tossed it like a rag doll. And I'm, I see bodies literally flying through the sky. Uh, one of which was uh, my buddy, another one of my weapons guys, teammate, who was in the turret of that truck. Just like a, like a lawn dot. Truck, him, smoke, obviously. And this thing lands off to the side of the road off of an, in a depression inside of an apple orchard is what it was. So a lot of really small trees. Um, I had never seen an IED like that cause that much destruction before. We had hit some prior to, but nothing nearly to this scale. Uh, so it's obviously a shock. And um, we've obviously rehearsed, you know, React IED hundreds and hundreds of times. I know what my job is, and I don't uh, execute on that requirement. I don't. I don't do my job. Instead, I jump out of the hatch in a moving Mat V and jump off the side of the truck and take off in a sprint on foot towards the vehicle. A lead vehicle gets hit, I'm in a trail vehicle. I think we had maybe four trucks out that day. So it's like a 200 to 250-ish yard distance between me and where this vehicle has now landed. And uh, I'm in a balls out sprint towards the vehicle. I get to it, um, this was the initiation of a complex ambush. So we're getting Dishka, PKM, Indirect, and RPGs all at the same time. Fuck. So the trucks are maneuvering, doing the right thing, getting into support by fire positions, right? Captain, it, the captain's in the lead vehicle, so he's down. Our warrant officer immediately takes command of the element. He's gathering information. Team sergeant's getting ready to start making tactical decisions, but they're, they're getting the truck's set to then decide how we're going to or how we're going to respond and i'm already on foot moving towards this truck i i get maybe maybe 30 40 meters from it and i i slide off the side of the road into this depression this apple orchard and uh it's you know it's november so it's there's not a lot of vegetation on these trees it's mostly branches so you can see through the orchard pretty good I can see the truck, and it's on its it's on its driver's side. Okay, it's on its driver's. The driver's side door is pinned against the ground. Passenger side door is facing the the sky, and I'm maneuvering towards it um, recklessly. Right, this wasn't like a tactical. Like I was, I don't think I was even at the low ready. I think I was just like sprinting towards this thing, rifle in hand, you know, and I trip and fall. And what I had tripped on was the my teammate who was in the the turret. He had landed about 35 or so meters from the truck. So I trip and fall, didn't see him, eat shit, turn around, and it's my boy Nate. Um, I know everyone in the truck is dead before I get there. I'm convinced of it. Like when I saw that destruction, I'm like, I'm going to roll up on five or six uh, bodies. That's what I'm about to see. Trip on Nate, turn around, and he's alive. And I'm like, holy shit. Okay, he's incoherent. He's obviously dealing with some severe blast injury. His leg is snapped in half, just below his knee. Um, but he's alive. And it takes a second for me to be like, what the fuck am I looking at? Okay. So I do like a quick sweep on him. Right? Training at this point 
does what it's supposed to do. And uh, do a quick sweep on him. And he's like making sounds. He's gasping, but he's he's able, he's breathing and he's not bleeding profusely from anywhere, which are two good signs to get pretty quickly. And uh, within just a couple seconds, the truck starts to get engaged by, by three dis- dismounted fighters, enemy fighters. They hadn't seen me yet. They were just aimlessly or just kind of irrelevantly just shooting AKs at the truck, right? And I can hear it. I'm, my back is to the truck, but I hear like ting, 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 ting. It was a new sound. So I snap around and I see these, these, three, uh, these three combatants shooting at the truck. Uh, so I have to make a really difficult decision to leave my friend and go deal with this threat. That was the first time I was put into a position like that. I did what I was trained to do at this point, and uh, and I leave Nate, who's like asking me for help, which was really hard to do. Uh, eliminate two out of three, right? Boom. The third takes off running, and I'm maneuvering through these trees. He's kind of running on an angle away from me, and he's firing his AK over his shoulder while running away. And I'm trying to get an angle you know, through these, through this orchard. And next thing you know, I'm on my ass and I'm looking up at the sky. I just see, I just see blue, the blue sky. I'm like, what the fuck just happened to me? And my initial thought was that I had run into one of the branches of one of these trees and it just knocked me down. I didn't even, I didn't find out for a while later, like like over an hour later that I'd actually been clipped no by shit. one of the AK rounds that this idiot was just spraying over his shoulder, right? Um, I get I get up, not knowing what had knocked me down, and I my initial thought is to continue to engage on this guy, but I, I noticed that the vehicle that the truck that had that had hit the ID was now on fire, so the back of the cab is cooking, visible flames, smoke flames. And I don't know who's inside the truck. I know Nate got ejected from it, but other than that, I haven't seen any of the other guys. So I let this, I let this threat go, uh, which even in that moment, I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Know? But I, I feel like I need to check this vehicle. And it's like rubble, man. You know, even the turret was completely collapsed in. Fortunately, the passenger side door had been blown off the hinges. And that's, again, facing the sky. So I climb up the side of the truck, and we're still taking rounds. Now the, now our trucks are engaged. A couple guys got some 60-millimeter mortar out. So, like, we're returning fire. But they're in a firefight, and I'm kind of in between all that. I climb up the side of this truck, and I look down into the cab, and uh, the only thing I see is our captain, who's buried kind of where the driver's seat would be. And he's talking on the radio. He's got comms up and he's trying to relay the situation, which says a lot about that dude. Yeah. You're in a completely obliterated truck that is on fire. And what you're doing is telling Haya what's going on. It wasn't communicating to anybody because everything had been destroyed. But, uh, he was just that fixated on doing his job. 
Wow. Remarkable. A captain is a big boy. All right. Captain's like 6'7", like 290, played offensive line at West Point. Oh, shit. It's a big cat. With kit, with equipment, he's over 300 pounds. Big boy. In fact, we used to joke um, that the captain and I could never be in the same vehicle because we were the only ones that were capable of lifting and moving the other one. It's ironic that this ended up kind of playing out. So, you know, I look in and I see this. No one, I don't see anyone else in the truck. Truck's on fire. Rounds from inside the vehicle are now cooking off. Pop, pop, pop. It's like looking inside of a, like a bag of popcorn while it's popping. You know, I do like this real fast assessment of the situation. And like, we're still taking rounds. Rounds are taking off the side of the truck. Truck's on fire. Rounds are cooking off on inside the truck. And I got a dude who's 290 pounds who's wedged inside just a pile of metal. And I'm like, Dad, I'm, neither one of us are making it, making it out of this. Like, this is it. But, but okay. Um, so I climb in through the door. And I start shimmying this massive dude uh, kind of upright. And I managed to just wedge him kind of where, like, the dash would be. And I climb myself back out. Um, grab his grab his kit and I'm able to just like yoke this dude up out of the passenger side door onto the top of the truck now um, and some teammates had showed up at this point some partner force guys had showed up at this point and I just chuck them off you know the side of the vehicle and uh, they took control of him he uh, one of his legs was essentially completely severed below the knee uh, he had severe damage to his other leg. Uh, he had an arterial bleed in his arm, and he's just mangled with, you know, shrapnel and burn uh, injuries. Should have probably should have died. Didn't. Um, he's alive and doing well today. But uh, get him out. Get him, you know, to the guys, and then do. At this point, the, you know, almost the entire truck is engulfed in flames. So we all get away from it, and now we're just searching the remote area. For uh, for the rest of the guys that were in the truck, we round up all of them. They were in different locations. All of them were alive, which to this day blows me away. It's like I don't know how any of you guys survived. You know, they were ranging in different severity of injuries. They were all obviously wounded to to a degree, but consolidated. You know, got a CCP together, uh, created a HLZ, and then you know we at, the, at right around that point. We had uh, air support that came in, so things calmed down. Uh, and it was while I was treating one of our attachments that was that was with us, his eye had um, completely come out of his face. His eye was hanging like where his cheek was. And uh, so I'm putting his eye back into his head at the CCP. I'm treating him and I'm wrapping him up. And uh, one of my teammates comes over to me and I just feel like a piece of gauze go against the side of my face. I look up and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, He's like, you're like gushing blood. So, and I know I'm covered in blood, but I had just been manhandling, you know, my team sergeant who was bleeding from like nine different places. It still hadn't registered to me that I had actually been shot, but it had clipped an artery inside my cheek. So I'm pissing blood, not knowing it. One of my teammates slaps this against, so he's holding this against me and I'm working on uh, this other dude. And um, we get... Everyone prep for medevac, get them loaded up. They all go out 
uh, QRF showed up on ground on the ground. They launched a couple vehicles from one of our sister teams that came over. So they get there. And uh, senior medic's looking at me, and I still haven't seen it. And he's looking at me, and he's like, I got to get you medevac, man. You're like, you need to get this taken care of by a doctor. And I'm like, fuck, no. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. You know, we play this game once again. I lose that battle once again. Eventually, I get on a medevac bird. Like they pick me up and uh, they take me to Bagram this time, which is where they had taken the rest of the guys. I'll, I'll never forget, I'm on the flight to Bagram and the, the, the flight medics, uh, he's, he's handed me a fentanyl lollipop. Do you remember fentanyl lollipops? Did yeah. you get those? We used to get fentanyl lollipops. Uh, they stopped issuing those a while ago, but he's like, hey man, take this. And I'm like, no, I'm like, get it, get it. I don't need that. He's like, nah, man, like, it's going to make you feel good. Like, it's going to chill you out. I'm like, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm pissed. I don't need anything. Uh, not only was I just really angry, but I knew I was going to where the rest of the boys were at, and I wanted to be coherent and, like, be able to be there with them. I don't know if these guys are going to drop dead, right? Yeah. There were some severe wounds and shit, so I'm like, no, nope, I'm fine. I need to be lucid. I need to be able to, like, be there for these dudes, so I'm good. Flight lands, and I'm still in full kit. I got all my shit on. I got all my stuff, man. I get off the bird, and, uh, you know, some poor, you know, private is is waiting for me with a wheelchair. I think that was just kind of their protocol. And I, like, kick that out of the way, and I go storming into the hospital looking for my team leader and my teammates to see what their status is. And I get, like, bum-rushed by, like, four or five medical staff that work there. And uh, they had a protocol that they that there was no like weapons and grenades in like the actual treatment room, like in the ICU where they brought guys in. And I got grenades and I got my pistol and I got all of the toys still on me. And they're trying to get me to relinquish my weapons and my kit to them so they can secure it according to their protocol. Meanwhile, I am furious, and these guys are just in between me and my teammates. Yeah. So things got real heated real quick uh, to the point where some people had some legitimate concerns that I was going to like go lethal on some people. I didn't, right? Um, one of my good, good buddies, real senior guy, happened to be there. And he came over and like grabbed me and like, you know, pulled me in real close, like eyeball to eyeball. It was like, Nick, like you need to just like calm down, man. Uh, so I did. I played nice, you know. Found found some of the guys. Some of the guys were in surgery. Some of the guys were just kind of out in treatment beds. So I'm, you know, on bedside, I'm checking on them. And a uh, doctor comes over to me. And he's like, hey, man, come over here and let's, like, let's get your face taken care of. I'm like, okay. I'm like, first off, like, I got to take a piss. I haven't done that yet. They're like, sure. So I walk in. I take a piss. I'm washing my hands. And I look in the mirror, this is the first time I saw myself. And it looked like a zombie had taken like a bite out of the side of my face. It was ugly as shit. And I'm still leaking. And it was in that exact moment I was like, man, I owe my medic an apology. Because in my mind, this was just like a scratch. And he was overreacting. Yeah. But once I saw it, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of an asshole. Okay, note to self. Go tell Elliot that uh, he was right and I was wrong again. So you got shot in the face. You hadn't seen it yet. You look at it. It looks fucking horrible. Yeah. 
and the f- the first thought is I owe the medic an apology. Oh yeah, it's, it's not holy shit. My face is fucked. No, no, no. It was I was a complete <laughs> oh, dick. Oh my god. Now for the second time, on our senior medic, who's a phenomenal medic and knows what he's doing, and made the right decision once again. And I uh, had a lot of like negative things to say about him in that moment. So I'm like, yeah, I owe him an apology. Um. So they take me over to get treated. And there was a plastic surgeon who was in country, who was an army reservist, a doctor in the army reserves. In his civilian practice, he's a plastic surgeon. He owns, he runs his own plastic surgery clinic. This is the guy that is there to treat me. He obviously did a phenomenal job. You can barely tell it's even there, right? You really have to look. So he's like, okay, um, I'm going to give you uh, some local anesthetic, and then I'm going to get you on uh, some pain management intravenously because this is going to suck. And I'm like, you're not giving me any um, any pain meds, nothing that's going to like affect my clarity, my ability to just, like see what's going on and talk. I don't want to be sleepy. My guys are in surgery. Like, I need to be there with them. Hit me with some local. That's fine. And then, like, let's go. And the doc's like, yeah, man, like, you're going to want some, um, like, morphine or or Dilaudid or whatever it was that they wanted to give me. Like, this is going to, like, I have to cauterize your face back together, which is just this little welder. It's like a medical welder. Like, that's how I have to do it because it clipped a, an artery. Um, there's also some shavings from the from the round that I have to extract. So I have to go in there and pull out these little these little pieces and then I need to melt your face back together. You're going to want uh, something more than just a local. And I'm like, fuck off. No. Like, just do it. And my commander had showed up. Um, and Doc looks over at him. And he's like, just go ahead. Just, like, do it. So I'm laying, you know, I'm laying on my side. And uh, he starts cauterizing it back together. Smell, right, like burning flesh. It, it hurt. Smoke's coming out of my face. It was more of just kind of like a weird, uh, a weird moment. <laughs> but what abruptly ended that weird moment was who is now my wife walked in the room. So she was deployed as well. Wow. And her and I were really, really close. And uh, I had been now wounded twice. And she walked in to the hospital and uh, she had a look of both fear and anger on her face. She was like pissed that I've now been shot up twice. So I'm looking at her as they're doing this and I'm like, oh man, she's like really angry at me right now. Okay, um, we'll, we'll have that conversation. Obviously, they put it back together, man. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal, really. Uh, it obviously could have been a lot worse. So I was I was at that location for another week or so. They were also again concerned about infection. I spent most of that time in the hospital because the guys were still there the entire time before I uh, got back on a helicopter and then went back out to the boys. And at this point, really no one tried to, no one tried to keep me there for any longer than 
than a week because I had kind of already displayed some insubordination to find a way to get back anyway. So it was about a week, maybe eight or nine days, and then I was back with the guys. Jesus, dude. Well, going back to the guy that shot you, do you have any idea if, if he's dead? No idea. No idea? No. No idea. Mike. I'd say no. I'd say my chances are he's dead, but um, I don't know. Roger that. Yeah. Well, let's take a break, and then we'll get into the rest. Let's do it. Hey, guys. I want to tell you about Kachava, my all-in-one daily super blend. If you're worried you aren't getting all the nutrients you need or struggling to stay on top of your health, then listen up because Kachava has you covered. All the superfoods, all the vitamins, all the omegas, all the adaptogens, all the greens, all the protein, all the benefits for your gut, your skin, your hair, your brain, your muscles, and your heart, your whole health. No more compromise, no more guilt. No other nutrition shake does all of this. They traveled to the ends of the earth to source them all and crush it up. Kachava is a powder you take two scoops, just add water, blend it up, and it tastes incredible. They have five delicious flavors. Chocolate and chai are my personal favorites. I drink Kachava for breakfast and it keeps me full for hours. There's just no way I could get all these nutrients with just my normal diet. Trying to manage all the supplements and ingredients you should be taking, it gets overwhelming and it gets expensive. But now, Kachava makes clean, organic, superfood nutrition accessible to everyone. You have got to try Kachava for yourself. Kachava is offering 10% off for a limited time. Go to kachava.com slash Sean, spelt K-A-C-H-A-V-A, and get 10% off your first order. That's K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com slash Sean. This is getting real heavy. Mm -hmm. um, so let's go ahead and walk us through the third incident. Yeah, man. So snow comes in uh, December, January-ish time frame. Everything kind of just takes a pause tactically because no one can really move around. So kind of everyone just kind of goes into hibernation mode where we were. And then things pick back up again, maybe late February. You know, so this is the same deployment, right? We came in in September of 12. Now we're in February going into March of 2013. And we've got, uh, we're getting ripped out, I think it's end of March time frame-ish. So, March 13th, I'm sorry, March 11th, uh, 2013. And we were getting ready to go on uh, a larger operation, joint mission. So we had Afghan National Army guys, we had Afghan National Police guys, we had Afghan local police guys all coming on this thing. And uh, at this point, we had developed our, our camp you know, we built it up again to the level that, that we could, that was appropriate with our mission. And we essentially had two tiers built within it. We had a, we had an external wire that was some busted up HESCO, and some chain link 
fencing, you know, nothing, nothing extravagant, but we had a perimeter. And then within that initial perimeter, we had our motor pool area, which is where we pack our vehicles, you know, storage, fuel, whatever. And then there was a separate set of force protection uh, between that and then where we actually lived and where our operation center was and those kinds of things. And we had developed an SOP, a standard operating procedure, where when we would do these larger missions with these other elements, they would show up and they would stay outside of our compound completely. The leadership that was necessary would come into our motor pool so that we could brief them on what it is we were gonna go do. They didn't know until that point, which is part of our Force Pro um, and operational security measures, was to tell them basically at the last minute to try to minimize the chance of them making that public, right? So the elements would stay outside, their trucks would stay outside, and then leadership would come in, our leadership would brief them on what we were doing, then we would go through our final, you know, our final brief, our final comps checks, and then we'd roll. We had developed that system months before, and it worked. It was, you know, it was effective. Well, on this particular day, the leadership rolls in as well as a Ford Ranger pickup truck that has a truck-mounted PKM machine gun on the back of it. Truck rolls in with two dudes in it. And immediately I see it. And I know that this is a violation of our SOP. So I'm immediately annoyed. I'm like, these guys, you know. I'm at a crossroads. On one side, I err on the side of security. And I address, the, I address that problem right there and then. Either directly walk up to the, the dude that drove the truck in and say, hey, get, get your truck out with the other vehicles. Or talk to my team sergeant, talk to my captain. And then they address that through their chain of command. I, one way or another, I address that right there and then. So I err on the side of security. The other option is to err on the side of rapport and relationships and let it ride. I'll bring this up with my leadership after we're done with this thing. They'll address it with their leadership. It'll get corrected. I end up going that route. Uh, You know, in hindsight, which we can talk about, it seems like it was an it's an it was an obvious mistake uh, that was made, and the results of what ended up happening would be indicative of that being true. That said, you know when you when you operate by with and through indigenous personnel, there's a constant balance between security and efficiency, or security and and trust, or security in that relationship. We require rapport and a successful, amicable working relationship with a partner force in order to be successful. We SF guys rarely, if ever, do anything by ourselves. It's always along with another group of people. So the development of that relationship and the maintenance of that relationship is critical to our mission success. It's something that's important, you know, for 
the lay person or a civilian out there that doesn't quite grasp that. Uh, we're only successful if we can foster and maintain relationships with other human beings. So that makes those decisions just that much more difficult to make. Yeah. And, you know, you're also conditioned to erring on the side of rapport and relationship maintenance and nothing bad happens. You know, you're successful. Like that was the right decision to make in that moment only because there was no negative effect that happened because of it. So I decide begrudgingly, even in that moment, I'm like, you know, these guys, all right, fine. I'll deal with this later. You know, I'll get this taken care of. Let's just get through today, get through this mission, and then we'll address that. So we're in, the, we're in essentially this massive circle. Once the Patent of Force leadership is briefed on what we're doing, we're in this massive circle going through our final pre-mission brief as a unit and our final comps checks which our SOP was, we get into a circle and uh, someone would initiate, you know, they're up on comps. Everyone gives like the thumbs up, you know, I can hear you. And then just go around in a circle. Everyone's just checking their comps. Everyone good, good, good. Well, it gets to me and, uh, you know, I'm like, bravo too. And uh, they're like, good. So I know my comms are up. I can hear them. They can hear me. And being the somewhat insubordinate soldier, lack discipline, I turn and start walking towards my truck, which is behind me. Truck's running. I start walking towards my truck. As the comms checks are continuing, and as I'm walking away from the group, is when I hear the rounds crack off for the first time. So one of the individuals that was inside that Ford Ranger, who was an Afghan national police officer, someone that we had actually been training with, and working with for the duration of our deployment, jumped up on the back of the truck and engaged into the group with that PKM from you know 15 feet away. An extremely vulnerable position that we're in. We're lumped together. It's just an ideal time frame to initiate an attack like that with that kind of weapon system at that close proximity. The likelihood of success is really, really high. Rounds are clacking off behind me. And my first thought was that one of our partner force guys just ended their rifle. Like just fingers slipped on the trigger, clacked off around. It wouldn't be uncommon for that to happen. But after the second round, third round, fourth round, right, I'm registering that it's a it's continuous fire. It's coming from a belt fed. Uh, this isn't a negligent discharge. This is someone's intentionally shooting at something. I don't know what it is. Someone's shooting on purpose. And I, I snap my head around and uh, I see what's happening. Right, gunner, 15 or so feet away from the group, ripping into the crowd. Guys are dropping, guys are scrambling. Um, chaos. So... My training tells me to move to cover and eliminate the threat. Essentially, just a react to near ambush type scenario, which we had rehearsed, I don't know, hundreds of times. A key point is when I had initially come out to get the trucks turned on, my go bag, my primary weapon system, and I had positioned those inside the vehicle. And then I left them there and I went to do 
our final comps checks. So the only weapon system I had on me was my pistol. It's an important note. Move the cover, eliminate the threat. Is what I'm trained to do. Well, what prevented that from happening is I was able to see in front of me, six, seven feet, one of our infantry uplift soldiers who was scheduled to come out on that mission with us that day. He was one of our drivers. Young kid, uh, first deployment, fresh out of basic, and he's frozen. And he's 15 feet in front of a guy who's shooting a machine gun in his general direction, and he's like a deer in the headlights. And uh, seeing that is what prompted me to move towards him rather than move to a piece of cover, which I had right next to me. So I take a couple real aggressive steps in his direction, and uh, kind of put, I put myself in between him and the shooter. So I'm facing this kid and my back is now to the shooter. And I came at this kid with such velocity that when I hit him, I hit, I hit him, I made contact with him and then I was hit in the back of my leg for the first time and I ended up just falling straight down on top of him. So I'm laying on top of this kid on the ground. We're chest to chest. I know I've been hit. A PKM from 15 feet feels like a sledgehammer smashing into your body. Not so much a penetration type feel, but just impact. And I've been shot, you know, before. I've been blown out before. I was familiar with it. I'm like, okay, I know I was hit. Uh, I'm not sure the severity, but I'm hit. And then I feel a couple more impacts. Boom, 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 boom. Shit. So now I know I've been hit multiple times. I'm like, this is okay. This is this is div- different than the times before already. Um, I drag myself and this kid four or five feet, wasn't very far, for us to get behind the corner of another one of the vehicles that was parked right there. It's the shade of cover. So I drag him and myself, whatever it was, four, five, six feet. And uh, shoot is still engaging. I go to grab my rifle, instinct, and it's not there. One of my teammates who had also been hit went, was down right next to me. His rifle was on the ground right next to me. So I grab his rifle, I put that in action. Um, I take a couple horribly placed shots at this shooter. And then one of my teammates uh, came in and eliminated that threat. So the primary threat has been eliminated, but we're now receiving rounds and rockets from outside of our compound. So this was a coordinated attack that was initiated by this insider attack. Well, I'm in no position to address the, the incoming rounds from outside of our compound. So I move into my next course of action and I check this infantry soldier that I'm still basically laying on top of. He's in shock, uh, pale, but uh, no holes in his body. He's breathing, he's just uh, frozen. Okay, he's okay. So now let's see what is going on with me. So I roll over and I, uh, I rip what's left of my pants, leg, 
my pant leg open and my right leg is just fucking mangled. And it's just like hammered meat and tissue and exposed bone. Uh, the docs estimated that it was at least four rounds that hit my right leg. Um, I also took a round to my lower left leg, which I didn't realize until um, weeks and weeks later. But my right leg was clearly the problem. And I am pissing blood out of my thigh. And I looked at where I had been hit originally to where I was at that point. Again, four, five, six feet. And there's just a river flowing from oh, where man. I was to where I was originally struck. So I know my femoral artery has been severed. And uh, we had a ton of medical training leading up to that deployment. And we got a lot of medical training during that deployment, right, in real time. So I know that I have maybe eight, nine minutes left before I'm completely bled out. Okay. Tourniquet. Pull a tourniquet off my kit. I get that up on, wrench that down as tight as I can, lock in the windlass, and uh, bleeding doesn't stop. It's like visibly still pouring out of my leg. So I grab a second tourniquet and I slap that on, wrench that down. Um, it's mass hysteria at this point, right? Our senior medic had been clipped, so he was down. Our junior medic was a National Guard SF guy who was attached to our team for that deployment. Um, his first deployment, fresh out of the Q course. Fortunately, in kind of a sick way, he got a lot of on-the-job training up until that point, because guys were getting banged up quite frequently, us in the partner force. So he had a lot of medical training and experience just within the five months of that time frame that we were out there. So now he's he's running the show. Right? He's trying to triage and manage a situation. Young kid, fresh out of the Q course, attached to an SF team that he just met when he showed up in country. And he performed spectacularly. I mean, truly remarkable what this dude did. His name's Connor. He's managing it, but people are screaming, people are crying, people are, it's a, it's it's a, the ultimate mass cow scenario. Um, to this day, considered the most catastrophic insider attack uh, it, since the global war on terrorism began. Wow. Right. So 12 US casualties total, um, including three killed, and then another dozen or so Afghans that were killed or wounded. So there are bodies everywhere. You know, mass cow is dictated by your, your ability to manage a situation medically based off of your personnel and resources. And we were wildly inverted on what we were able to actually manage to just the number of casualties on the ground. I have a second tourniquet on that I applied. And then at that point, one of my teammates got over to me. And he, uh, he looks at me and the look on his face said everything that he's like, Nick's not going to make it. You could see that. And um, I could see that in him. And I was like, listen, man, go work on someone that you can, that you can save. Like I am in the expectant category here in triage. Don't waste your time, precious seconds and resources on me because I'm done here. I accepted that entirely. I was convinced of it. 
he, uh, so I'm like trying to fight. I'm like trying to tell him to go away. And he's obviously ignoring me. He applies a third tourniquet and he gets IV access uh, for blood or meds or whatever needs to come on board. And then his work was pretty much done. He was uh, kind of at the limit of what he was able to do. And then he moved on. You know, we said a quick goodbye and then he, uh, he moved on. So I'm laying there and I can still feel myself leaking. I'm convinced I'm still bleeding. And uh, I try to move my leg, it's not moving. My femur was completely shattered. Can't move my leg, but I just reach underneath it with my hands and I just lift, I just lift it up to try to see if I can see any blood kind of come out the bottom of it. Uh, and this was where the pain first really set in. At that point, it really didn't, I really didn't feel much pain. The adrenaline was just pumping so hard that I didn't feel much. When I lifted that leg up, then it was just this searing, holy shit moment where it was like the inside of my body was trying to explode out of my eyeballs. Um, and I could, sure enough, I could still see blood kind of trickling out of one of the wounds. So I'm like, okay, man, have I, uh, time's getting like real short here. Have I done everything? Is there anything I can do? And I decided that there was. So I, I loosened up one of the tourniquets. I grabbed some gauze out of my kit and I balled it up into what we call a power ball. Um, and I just ram it inside my thigh and I'm kind of reaching upward almost towards my hip and I'm trying to feel for the pulse of the femoral artery. Well, a few minutes had gone by and your blood starts to shunt inward to your body to protect your organs, to keep you alive as long as possible. So I have very little, you know, dexterity in my hands. But I think I feel something, you know, I'm, br I'm brushing past broken bone. Um, the pain's really kicking in. I'm starting to lose consciousness. The, the, light, the, the lights are starting to go out. Like I'm, on the, I'm on the way to see the wizard. And uh, I think I feel something. And I kind of just go all in and I just ram down as hard as I can. And I just feed the rest of the gods in on top of that. And then re-secure the tourniquet, lock that in. Um, and then I passed out. For 15, 20 seconds, maybe a minute. It wasn't very long before I came to. And then uh, I'm like, okay, now my work here really is done. Like I am out of options. So I uh, just... I just kind of drug myself over to where some of my teammates were that were dealing with some injuries. I got to my senior medic who was not that far from me. He had taken a round through his calf. Tourniquet was on. Ble bleeding had stopped. He was just in a lot of pain. You know, so I just was uh, talking to him, trying to comfort him. Knew my time was, was coming to a close and wanted my last moments on earth to just be alongside these guys, like doing whatever I can to kind of ease their discomfort. And that's a, that's a trip. Um, like knowing you're going to die. It's a trip. And I was surprisingly content with it. I remember feeling an enormous level of frustration that after all the engagements and all the, all the gunfights and all the explosions and shit that we had been through, that I was gonna be 
killed as the result of someone that we had been working with. That was, that really irritated me. You know, like, man, really? Yeah. Really? So just kind of, well, that sucks. But okay. Um, and then my thoughts were with my, my parents, my sister, uh, you know, visualizing what they were going to have to go through. Military funeral with honors, Arlington, right? Like the whole thing, I, I can see it. So some guilt for that. You know, my, my parents, my father told me, no, right? You're not enlisting because I don't want you to be killed. And uh, he would have, he was going to be right. So I was, I was, I was really, I was upset about that. Um, but then I moved to this really relaxed state of contentness and, and calmness. And, you know, I got what I asked for. This is where I wanted to be. I, I, re I worked really hard to be here. And if I'm going to die, it's going to be alongside, you know, my boys. And I'm okay with that. It took the medevac bird uh, almost an hour and a half to be able to land because it was an ongoing engagement. They can't risk the bird. It was on station within minutes, but it couldn't land until we got the situation on the ground under control. So our JTAC went to work, um, earned the silver star that day for his actions. He obliterated this valley, obliterated. They sent every single air platform that we had available and he annihilated anything that was moving within that area. You were deemed a threat. Uh, it still took some time though. So Medevac Bird comes down hour, hour and a half after the initial incident. And I'm on the first, I'm on the first lift. Me, my team sergeant, who uh, was hurt badly as well, and one other dude. At that point, they had two options. One, was to fly us to where that forward surgical team was located, the same place that initially treated my shoulder. They could fly us there because it's closer. It's a shorter flight. Or they fly us directly to Bagram, which has a higher level of medical care because it's a full-blown hospital, but it's farther away. So they decided to go with speed versus level of care, which isn't a wrong decision to make. It actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like We need to get these guys in front of a doctor now sent us to that location where the FST is located. They uh, rip us off, throw us right into, um, into the surgery clinic. I need a blood transfusion bad. The, the fact that I was still alive 90 minutes later with the severed femoral artery without direct intervention on that artery in itself uh, is unusual to say the least. I need blood bad. So they put me on a transfusion and started pumping me full of blood. And they, they pumped me full of quite a bit. I want to say it was like six or seven units. It was a lot. Wow. The problem was it was an incompatible blood type. Holy shit. So everything in my body begins to shut down. My lungs, my liver, my kidneys, they're all dying. And the docs are assuming it's because of the trauma that I've experienced and the length of time that I was on the on the battlefield that is causing that but they they don't they don't know for certain but they know I need to get to Bagram immediately 
So they put me back on a helicopter and they fly me to Bagram, which was maybe a six or seven minute flight. It was relatively quick. And it's while I'm on the flight to Bagram that they realize what happened with the blood. And what it is was they, they mixed up my name with my team sergeant's name. We have similar last names. They both begin with L and A. They gave me his blood type. They gave him my blood type. Well, I'm O positive. I'm a universal donor. So I, I can give blood to anybody and it'll be okay. He's like AB negative or just something crazy. Uh, I think whatever it is, it's like the most incompatible blood type that we have. It's like the most specific type uh, is what they gave me. And they realized it because they were looking at his transfusion. They were going, oh, we're giving this guy O positive. And then they said, oh, shit, what did we just give Nick? Oh, we gave him AB negative. So they call Bagram Hospital. I'm airborne. I've coded at this point. They call Bagram Hospital and they say, we just pumped Nick full of like six units of the wrong blood type. It's incompatible. There's no way he survives the flight. So just be prepared to receive his body. No, he's not going to make it. And they're like, okay. Uh, so I show up. I'm by myself on this flight. I've coded. Uh, flight, med, you know, med flight crew panels, like the whole thing. They're getting real creative, trying to keep me clinging to the thread that I'm hanging on to. Uh, pull me off, rush me right into surgery anyway. I don't have a heartbeat. Um, panels, they hack my leg off below the knee try to minimize how much damage my body is attempting to recover from. Transfusion, dialysis, intubated, the works. And, you know, I was obviously able to survive. Jesus, dude. I've, I've never fucking heard anything like that. Yeah, man. And, you know, it took me a while, Sean, to be able to comfortably talk about the blood transfusion incident, what happened, because it's uh, more than likely the, the response to that is, man, how the fuck could you do that? You know, it's, it's met with confusion. How could you make such a mistake, really? You almost killed this guy. You really should have killed this guy. Uh, and I am extraordinarily protective of our medical community for the work that they did on me and my friends, both in that moment in that incident, one's prior, one's after. I'm very protective of that, of that community. And I was um, concerned about sharing that portion of the event because it would paint them in a negative light. And the reality is, man, you know, we, we live in the world of the human dynamic and nobody um, is above making mistakes. And when adrenaline's pumping high and stress is at the all-time high, regardless of what it is you're doing, in, the, in, in this particular incident, these guys are trying to save three people who are dying, um, mistakes happen. I've made countless of them. Uh, so it happens. And I just think being able to, to share that, there's, there's value in that, in the incident, because immediately following that happening, they sent out a mass distro to the entire medical community and the entire AOR saying, this is what happened with this dude. And because of that, they updated their 
protocols when it comes to administering blood. Uh, protocols that still are, are exist today. So we tend to learn solely through failures, period. We learn through making mistakes and feeling the pain and the consequences of those mistakes is how we get better. I was fortunate that I was strong enough physically and got real lucky that they could make this mistake on me and I was able to survive it. But if that hadn't happened to me and it happened to someone else who was unable to survive that for whatever reason, uh, that would be a tragedy. But because it happened to me and I'm here to share it, we've made the necessary corrections. We've lowered the risk of working with blood um, to mitigate that happening again in the future. So there is positivity. I'm, I'm grateful that it happened to me because I was able to come out the other end of it. But it caused, you know, it certainly complicated things. Yeah. It took things yeah. from a position where it was, man, you were already clinging by a thread and your entire right leg is mangled to now we have to treat this, your entire biological system that is crashing. Holy shit. I, I don't, I don't even know. I'm speechless, man. Uh, wow. Yeah. Let's take a break. Let's do it. What's going on, Patreon? Join me on Vigilance Elite Patreon for a live video teleconference. All right, we're back from the break. So how long were you at Bagram? I was at Bagram five, six days. And then where did you go after that? Uh, from there, so I needed to stay in Bagram long enough for them to stabilize me enough to survive a fixed wing flight to Germany. Okay. So five days in Bagram in the intensive care unit, um, and then on a flight to Germany. I was in launch stool for a day, I believe, just a day. It was at launch stool that they amputated my leg up to the knee. Technically, it's called a knee disarticulation, where they kind of just take your knee apart. They did that in Germany. I was there just a night, um, one or two nights, and then I was at Walter Reed. How many surgeries total? Man, on my right leg alone, somewhere between 30 and 35. But you know, by the time I got to Walter Reed, uh, they were really battling infection. That was the concern when you're laying exposed, uh, especially in a country like Afghanistan. Bacteria, fungus, it's all growing inside my body. And I'll, ne I'll never forget this crystal clay, even though I was on a whole host of medication. My surgeon comes in, the chief of ortho at Walter Reed, and he's like, hey man, here's the deal. My staff wants to take you into the operating room down the hall right now, and they want to amputate your leg at the hip to just get rid of the infection and get you moving on with life. Um, 
They're right in a lot of ways because this infection could kill you at any moment. You're riddled with bacteria and infection and it could kill you. But I think that I can save more of your leg, but it's going to be a street fight slugfest that I need you in the fight with me if we're going to have a shot at it. And I'm all whacked out, man, on ketamine and Dilaudid. And I'm like, I'm looking up at this guy who I just met, who's telling me that his staff wants to remove my leg at the hip and I'm dealing with an infection that could kill me, but he wants to save more of my leg. What do you want to do? And uh, I was like, yeah, man, let's do that. He's like, okay, cool. We're going to go into the operating room and uh, I'm going to see what I can do. So it was, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday was kind of my typical schedule where it was in surgery. They would amputate just above the infection, cut out any of the muscle or tissue that was deemed unsavable and pump me full of antibiotics and then rinse and repeat day after day after day for like six weeks. So th- hold on. So that so you're literally just watching your fucking leg disappear. Yeah, bit by bit. Bit by bit, day at a, a day at a time. Yeah, three, four days a week, you know, go in, wake up, come out. There's just that much less there. Oh my God. You know, and because my femur had shattered, the way that they were they pieced that back together, they were using what's called an external fixator, which is literally this these metal components that you can see sticking outside of your body that are penetrated into your body that are holding all of these pieces together. So picture like an erecta set that's attached to your thigh, in my case. Every time I would go into surgery, that that piece of equipment would look a little different because they were they were shortening the limb. So that was kind of my first visual cue every single day to just how much less leg I had because I'd be all bandaged up, you know. I really couldn't see my limb itself, but I could see that external fixator. So every time I would come out of surgery, you know, anesthesia would wear off. I kind of get my bearings. I'd look at that. We call an X fix. I'd look at that X fix to see just how much it had changed. Um, you know, in the course of the last four hours that I was in surgery. Holy shit. When you got shot in the, in your leg for this incident, did you, was there any feeling in the leg at all? Like, did you feel your leg at all or do you remember? Only thing I remember is when I I started moving it around and I started I started applying that that pressure dressing was when I would feel the pain uh, and it was excruciating. Other than that, it was kind of just like a dead part of my body that was just attached to me by skin and some tissue. Do do you uh, did you feel any phantom pain? At Not time? at the initial point, but. I felt that very quickly once I started weaning off the massive dose of ketamine that I was on. When they started weaning me off of that was when the phantom limb pain kicked in. And that is a son of a bitch. What, what, is, what is it? Can you describe it? I can, man. It's, it's, it's a crazy concept, you know, from like a biological perspective. Your nerves and are connected to your brain and it really works as a two-way street all the time. Your brain is sending messages down through the nerves to different parts of your body and they're expecting a return signal. Well, when that all of a sudden stops, 
the response to that is phantom limb pain. It's it, the response is pain and discomfort because it's not receiving that return message because the limb doesn't exist anymore, right? The nerves are gone. Um, it's something I still experience, you know, to this day. In the in the early stages of it, it felt like my my foot, my non-existent foot, was being crushed by a vice. Holy shit! It's like a that, crushing sensation. Painful. Yeah, it's a crushing sensation, and it makes it even more difficult when you can't see it or touch it. You know, you smash your hand with a hammer. Your immediate response is to grab the hand that hurts. Yeah. Right? You're like, oh, you know, and you kind of rub it out. Whatever, put some ice on it. Well, when you've got excruciating pain in an appendage that doesn't exist anymore, you just have to bear down and just deal with it. You know, and there's medication that that I was on that would help kind of calm that a little bit. There's other therapies that you can try, uh, which I did. None of them really worked all that much. But phantom limb pain is a sneaky son of a bitch that you don't think about when you think about losing a limb uh, that sneaks up on you pretty quick. And it... uh it's tough to deal with, man. Today, the way what I feel most of the time, it's kind of like a pins and needle kind of feeling. Like if your hand went numb or if your foot went numb for sitting awkwardly for a bit of time, kind of has that tingle sensation, like this ginger ale in your foot, kind of fizzy. That's what it feels like most of the time. Uh, it spikes for me, however, at night when my because this is neuro, it's a neurological it's a neurological issue. It's all in your brain. Uh, at nighttime when my brain is trying to turn off is when it'll go up because while I'm up and moving and doing stuff neurologically I'm focused on whatever it is I'm doing at that time so it's really not focused on the lack of return message coming from a non-existent extremity when I'm trying to sleep is when it'll uh, it'll spike damn what Man, I got a lot of questions. I hope nothing's off the table. Send it. But no, man, you know, you're good. What is? I mean, what's going through your what's going through your head? You know, with as you're watching your leg disappear bit by bit, day by day. I mean, what what is going through your head as far as you know what the rest of your life looks like? Are you going back? I mean, I'm assuming you you were not thinking you were gonna continue to be a Green Beret? I actually was. No shit. Yeah, man, I was. I, I, I fixated myself to that end state, even in these early, these early days. And, you know, there's a lot there, man. One is I absolutely love what I do. Uh, two is I feel like I was put on this earth to do it. But more acutely, I was kind of conditioned, man, to getting wounded and then recovering really, really fast, and then going back to conducting operations. I had been wounded twice before, obviously not nearly to the degree of severity of this, but in my mind it was, yeah, man, you've, you've been hurt before, and you got past it, so this is just another one of those hurdles that you need to get past. It's gonna be a little bit more compl- complicated and complex, but no, you're going back, man. So that was, that was what I focused on, you are one stubborn son of a bitch. Completely. Oh, my God. Yeah, completely, man. And that's like a big part of like my success and then, you know, kind of transitioning away from that like degree of, self, of selfishness 
in terms of why I wanted to go back. But in those early stages, those early days and weeks and months, uh, it was a lot about me um, going back to doing what I want to do because it's what I want to do. So stubbornness, competitiveness kind of drove me from the very early moments. Did you ever feel self-pity or did you fall into that at all? I really didn't. And, you know, it's not something that I'm really that proud of. And I say that just because it's nothing to be ashamed of if if that happens. Um, and, of course, you know, Walter Reed, man, it's I call it the greatest place you never want to go to. It's an amazing facility. Every single medical professional you can imagine was there. And in kind of their whole of wellness approach to recovery, you meet with, uh, with psychs, behavioral psychs. It's just part of your regiment. You know, obviously, once I was out of the ICU and I was a bit more stable, these guys would come in and sit down and, how you doing? You know, they're evaluating your psychological well-being. And I was telling these guys from the very first time I met with them, you know, I'm fine and I just need to get whatever new leg you're going to give me and then, uh, and then I'm going to go back to my job. And at one point, he had a conversation with my father who was there, who met me when I got to Walter Reed. He was there already. And he stayed with me for the first six months that I was there. He grabbed my father at one point. I was in surgery or I was in physical therapy or something. And he said, hey, dad, um, you know, you're Nick's like, primary support mechanism here. And I just want you to be aware that he fully believes that he's going back to his team and going like right back to normal for him. I don't think he's quite grasped the severity of his injury yet. I think he's in a state of denial or he just can't process it. He doesn't know how bad it is. Like They're still cutting pieces of his leg off of his body. And he's talking to me about going back to Afghanistan to conduct combat operations. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And I just want you as his father and as his primary support means that's here to be ready for when that light bulb goes off because it could very easily trigger him going down a really dark road into depression or whatever that may look like. And I want you to be prepared for that. And my father's like, hey, Doc, I hear what you're saying. Um, thank you for that. But I think he does know what's going on. Uh, this is just kind of part of who he is. He's a stubborn dude who wants to win, but really, really hates to lose. Uh, so I'll certainly keep an eye on it, but um, I do think he knows what's going on. This is just where his mind is right now. Did your dad have any idea that you you had a lemon-sized wound in your back and you got shot in the face? Oh, yeah. He knew that yep. prior to being there? Yeah, he knew about both of those within a day or two after they happened. I'd call home, tell him what was going on. Damn. In a lot of ways, those kind of set them up for failure when, you know, when they got this phone call because, you know, part of the that kind of next of kin notification protocol is they'll get a phone call typically from someone other than than the injured person from someone in the chain of command that's like, hey, you know, your son's been injured. This is the status. He'll, con he'll contact you as soon as he can in the next 24 hours or whatever. So he had received a phone call like that twice prior, you know. Hey, Nick, Nick got hit with some shrapnel. Nick got shot in the face. I know it sounds bad, but he's actually fine. He'll call you tonight. Um, they get that third phone call, and he'll tell you. In a lot of ways, he was expecting it to be very similar. Where it was, Nick got banged up again, 
but he's going to call you tonight. And which, of course, was not the, not how that played out. You know, it was like Nick got, Nick, Nick's like really uh, hurt right now and he might not make it. If he does, he's going to be at Walter Reed, you know, the day after tomorrow. So we need to get you there. Damn. How long were you at Walter Reed? What's, what is, what, what is, I mean, what is the, when was the last cut? I got there March. I want to say I was done with my surgeries in June, time frame-ish. I needed a couple revisions after the fact, which is really frustrating, and, you know, when you, get, when you take a step backwards. You know, I, what I mean by that is surgeries end, swelling goes down, they begin the process of fitting me for a prosthetic. I start to make progress working with my leg, and then, hey man, we gotta go back in and open you back up again and correct Shit. this issue. And it just like resets the entire clock. That happened with me a couple times. Um, but I'd say around July, August timeframe was when I was done with surgeries and I was full on in physical recovery mode, working with the PTs and the, and the strength coaches at Walter Reed. Total, how, how long were you? About a year. It took a year? Yeah, I was there a year, just, just over a year. Um, and it's kind of a phase model, at least it was for me. It was, you know, intensive care unit where they were trying to make sure I would stay alive. Inpatient status where I lived in a hospital bed and that was where I was continuously going through surgery, surgery, surgery. And then you move into outpatient status where you live on Walt, the Walter Reed compound and essentially like this little apartment. And then your job is to just go to all your medical appointments every single day. So you're kind of gradually moving away from that that hospital environment and learning how to live on your own and kind of start to develop your routines and your habits and kind of restructure a normal day-to-day life for you. All that happens at the hospital. Um, but all in all, it was just over a year before I returned back to, to Fort Bragg. What? Damn. What, um, when you got back to Fort, I mean, how, what, did you know you were going to be back in, in the team? No, 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 When you got there, when you got back there? No, not, not at all, man. I mean, that was my intentions from like the very beginning, but I hadn't a clue what my future held. If it was, if the, if I could even stay in the army, can I stay in the army? Can I stay in SF? administratively is this even allowed am I going to be forced to to become a civilian I had no idea um, what was in front of me but when I got back to Walter Reed I sat down with the third group command team group level um, all the way down to battalion company and you know they were like hey welcome back good to see you you know you look good that kind of stuff and they said hey man like what are you what are you trying to get into here and I told them right there and then in that conversation, I said, I'm going back to the team. And I think that they probably struggled to hold back the crazy looks that they probably wanted to give me. Like, because it's still really early on, man. I think I had just, no, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't need a cane to walk around all the time, but I was still like early on, you know, clumsy walking, like limping. Like I was not this, like walking in, 
physical specimen, like ready to go back to work. I was still, I still had a long way to go. And I'm telling these guys, the group commander, like I'm going back to an ODA. And they were like, okay, um, well, when do you think that you want to try to do something like that? And I said, not anytime soon, you know, so I need a job here in the meantime. And, uh, I know that a med board is going to be triggered because of the level of injury. So I'm gonna have to manage that administratively, but I'm just letting you know, like what I'm trying to do. And they said, okay. And then they asked me, Hey, where do you want to work? I said, I'd like to go over and be an instructor on the combatives committee within our advanced skills company. You know, I've been in combat sports most of my life, boxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu. So I was big into jiu-jitsu at that point in time. So it was a great fit. And uh, they, they, they allowed me to do that. So I began working as an instructor, teaching combatives and CQB stuff. And initiated, my, my, my med board was initiated, which was about an eight month process. Uh, an administrative slugfest with the army who had every intention of forcing me to medically retire. And I had to dig my heels in uh, several times. And I you know, refused to work with some people who just were convinced that that was my future. I needed to make some phone calls and get some paperwork and get some memos from some people that had some rank that would vouch for me. So at the end of that med board, I was found unfit for duty as per the Department of the Army standards as it's associated with my MOS as an 18 Bravo. Like these are the list of things that you need to be able to do to be found fit for duty. And I couldn't do all those, you know, 12 mile ruck in X amount of time, two mile run, like the physical things. I hadn't even come close to trying those things yet, but I was confident that I could do it. So I was found unfit for duty, but I had learned that there was a, another alternative option if that ends up being the case, which is referred to as the continuation on active duty request or called COAD, which basically, uh, takes the onus and the risk off of the Department of the Army and it places it on the unit. So the Department of Army can say, Nick is unfit for duty, and the group commander, and I think he needs that needs to be endorsed by the first GO in the chain of command, can say, yes, we recognize that, however, we still want to retain him. That's ultimately what ended up happening with me. It took him eight months to determine that I was unfit, and it took five days for my unit to say that they wanted to keep me anyway. So now that that was all done, but an eight month process, all of which time I'm working as an instructor and I am out of my mind obsessed with getting back. Everything had been removed from the equation. Um, I knew that if I was gonna have a legitimate shot at being successful at this, I would have to train at the highest level of my life. I would have to cut out every single thing and every single person that didn't need to be there to have a shot. That's just what I truly believed. Yep. And um, and that's what I did. And my, my regiment for that eight month period and really some time beyond that was uh, was meticulous and just completely dialed in my with my nutrition and my sleep and my training, um, my studies, my reading, it was all, all centered around getting back to the team, everything. And, you know, I said that, you know, my, my now wife was in Afghanistan when, when all this happened. When I left the hospital, I moved in with her and uh, we weren't married. 
So we were kind of in the early stages of, of our relationship. And I remember sitting her down. I'd only been home for a couple of weeks. I'm in her house and living in her house. I sit down with her and I say, hey, babe, like, this is what I'm going to be doing. And uh, I need you to like understand that. And what that means for us is uh, I will not be traveling for the weddings or birthday parties. Uh, there's no dinners going out. We're not going to the movies. Like I'm cut, I'm punting everything, everything. It's train, eat, sleep, repeat. That's it. Period. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take. Like this is what my future looks like, and uh, there is no plan B. And I just want to be very transparent and honest with you because if that's something that sounds crazy to you, which I would understand, but something that you don't want to be a part of, then I understand that, and I'll find a new place to live, and we can just kind of go our separate ways. And uh, it's like emotional to talk about that, yeah. Man, because you know, you fast forward from that point um, now, like almost ten years, and we have just in a beautiful family, and we've got you know two young boys. Like we have a five-year-old and our fourteen-month-old, and I live a very fortunate, loved, and loving life, and all that could have couldn't have just ceased to existed if uh, she had decided, which would have been understandable, that, hey man, what this dude is talking about is is crazy. And I, I, I don't think I want to be a part of that. So, very fortunate that she had the strength to be alongside me and remain supportive during that, um, during that journey. Uh, cause that's, that's what my life looked like, man. So, you know, after eight months of living just the ultimate, you know, spotting minimalist, eat, sleep, train lifestyle, uh, at times reckless, you know, reckless went past that point, um, into the realm of recklessness. I, uh, I decided I was, I was ready to give it a shot to get back to the team. You know, I vocalized that with my chain of command. I said, Hey, I think, uh, I think I'm ready to do this. What, what does this look like? What do you, like, what do I need to do? And, you know, there had been some guys before me that were wounded. Third group, again, we, third group owned Afghanistan. So there were a lot of dudes that were wounded. Uh, several amputees that stayed in service, stayed in the unit that uh, had sensitized, you know, the chain of command and decision makers to what amputees can do before I ever became one. Which was, I think, I think it's important to recognize that. Because when I brought it up, I wasn't the first amputee that said, I want to go back to combat. Yeah. Right? None of the ones prior had been successful at making it all the way to that point, but they had certainly trailblazed some of that path for me. So when I bring this up and said, hey, man, I want to, I want to go back. What do I got to do? There really wasn't this like structured pipeline for me to go through step by step by step. You know, my chain of command just kind of began throwing different tasks and tests and assessments at me and it started off relatively basic it was like okay go do an army physical fitness test you know just a standardized fitness test let's see how you do you know and i knocked that out and it's like okay well let's go have you go do a 12 mile ruck so i've just you know your basic army standardized physical assessments is really where it began and as i'm as i'm doing these things you could feel like the nervousness within the unit, you could feel the tension. Like these decision makers are like, he's still, he's still going? 
okay, well, like, let's make him do that now. Um, it got to the point where they had me go in for another psyche eval because I think people genuinely thought I was crazy. People genuinely thought that I had, like, a clinical, like, diagnosable, delusional problem. And they're like, let's get this guy's mental well-being checked out real quick, which they did. And the psychs came back, and they're like, yeah, he's... You know, he's no more crazy than he already was or the rest of these guys. So he's good as far as I'm concerned. You know, and then, they, you know, they gave me a proficiency evaluation to, to test my abilities to function as an 18 Bravo. Um, so my, my schedule at that point looked like one or two assessments a week for about 12 weeks. Wow. So, uh, yeah, about 12 weeks, about three months worth of time. And it was just boom, 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 boom. Um, did you have any other amputees that like as a mentor or, or motivation or, Hey, you know, absolutely this can be done. Yeah. Several, you know, and I met a bunch of them at Walter Reed. There were a few that were in third group that, uh, I was able to leverage and, you know, learn from. And that information is great and helpful, but you really have to, you have to walk the journey yourself, man. You know, so I was, uh, I had an, an enormous amount of support around me, but I could also f feel the hesitation and the concern, both with my leadership and those that, that love me and care for me. They're like, are you really going to go back to doing this? You know, like we didn't think this was even remotely possible. We wanted to support you to be a positive su support mechanism for you and your goals, but you're actually making kind of some legitimate progress towards it. Like this thing may actually become real. This thing may actually become real that no one really thought could happen. And one event after another, that just starts to get more and more amplified until, you know, I hit that last physical assessment, which third group had created because they had so many wounded guys, they created a separate physical assessment specifically for wounded guys that wanted to try to go back to operational status. They built this themselves. And it wasn't your, so much a standardized PT test, pull-ups, running, sit-ups. It was like tactical-type movements to try to replicate those types of physical requirements within a combat scenario. And it was brutal. I mean, it was absolutely brutal assessment. And our uh, group CSM, he took it himself uh, the day before I did with a... Uh, just as a battle buddy with one of my with one of my other buddies who he took a round through his hand. He was trying to go back to the team. The group CSM took the test with him, just alongside him, just to be kind of a support for him. And I walk in the gym after they had finished, and they're both laid out on the turf, um, exhausted. Our group CSM, um, he just recently retired. He was the most recent um, USASOC CSM. His name is Mark. He's a stud. PT stud, able-bodied dude, he's laid out on the turf, smoked after this test. And I walk in just to loosen up. You know, I'm taking the test the next morning. And he sees me. And he's like, hey, Nick, how you feeling? Good. And he's like, you doing this thing tomorrow? I said, yeah. He's like, I just took it. And it just kicked my ass. I said, yeah, it's tough. I've been training for this thing specifically now for like four weeks. It's brutal. I had never taken the entire assessment to standard once before that point because I knew it was going to destroy me. I just, when I was training, I would break it down into little chunks and yeah. I would do like event one, two, and three, back to back to back, like in repetition, and then event four, five, and six. You know, that's how I did it. 
So I didn't know how I would do on it, but this was like my Super Bowl. After 12 weeks of all these other stuff I, that I had to do, this was it. And he's like, okay, well, I'm gonna be here tomorrow, man. So, you know, good luck. I said, thanks, showed up the next day. And there's like 50 people at this thing. You know, my entire chain of command is, uh, group commander's there, everyone's there, my teammates are there. Uh, a bunch of all my combatives colleagues are there. The big crowd. And, uh, you know, boom, 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 boom. I, I go through the whole thing and I get done. And I have no peripheral vision. I'm on the verge of passing out, trying to look tough, standing there, right? Like I could do it again if I needed to. <laughs> uh, Mark Eckert comes over, CSM comes over, and he says, Hey, man, you know, I just took this yesterday myself. I said, Yeah. He's like, If I wasn't here personally to witness you do what you just did, there's no way I would have believed that that was possible. And I said, Well, thank you. But, uh, like, what else do you guys need from me, man? Like, really? Like, can I go back to my team now? And uh, he looks, so, which got kind of a chuckle out of my teammates who were like, yeah, he really just said that to the group CSM. <laughs> you know. He looks over at the group commander, um, who's kind of smirking, and he's like, hey, CSM, this is a manning decision. This is your decision. But I don't know how, you, after what we just put this dude through, I don't know how you're going to tell him no. Um, but it's your call. And uh, CSM looked at me and said, all right, man, I'll have your orders done uh, tomorrow. And the following week, I was, I was back on the same, the same ODA, and they were way late in their train-up. They had already done all their collective stuff. They had already done their PMT because uh, they were pushing out the door. We were pushing out the door just like five weeks later. So they were just getting ready to go on block leave and then head over. So about a month after that, I was back no in Afghanistan. Shit. You, yeah. you went back to Afghanistan. Right back to Afghanistan. This was now in 2015. So from flash to bang was right around two years from point of injury to uh, to my return to back to Afghanistan. Holy shit. Let's, no. let's take a break. When we pick up, we'll pick up right there. Hey guys, let me tell you about this subscription service that I've been working real hard on called Vigilance Elite Patreon. Basically on Patreon, we have it broken up into three different tiers. We got tier one, tier two, and tier three. Let's dive in. Our tier one patrons get all the behind the scenes footage of the Sean Ryan show. That could include behind the scenes photos, that could be side conversations that we have in between breaks, that could be specific questions that our patrons give us for the guest on the Sean Ryan show and a ton of bonus content that doesn't really fit into any specific category. For our tier two patrons, they get access to our tactical training library, which consists of well over a hundred videos. We've broken those videos up into separate categories and those categories are rifle fundamentals, pistol fundamentals, drills, tactics, driving, gear and weapon setups, and everybody's favorite, mindset. Also on Tier 2, you will get a live update from me on the 1st and the 15th of every month where we talk about the upcoming guests on the Sean Ryan Show, plus all the benefits of Tier 1. Our top tier, which is Tier 3, gets full access to all the other tiers, plus 
they get full access to me where we do video teleconferencing VTC once a month we discuss anything from tactics to current events to who's coming on the show I take suggestions and it's very interactive no matter what tier you choose the support is greatly appreciated and it is the only thing that makes this show drive on so thank you for all the support see you on patreon All right, Nick, so we're back from the break. We left off. You had just basically been through all the re rehabilitation and you got the ominous dominus. You're back on the ODA, back on the team. Yeah, man. And you're going to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. But we had a conversation offline uh, that I found very interesting about, you know, what did the team want? And I, I would like to dive into that before we go on deployment. Yeah. Man, it was, it was an interesting ride because when I was at Walter Reed and, you know, I got this vision in my head of, of getting back to the team and, and going back to doing, doing the job, it was about me wanting to do what I want to do. Me getting back to the lifestyle in which I love, uh, getting back into the fight, proving myself right, proving the naysayers wrong, you know, making the enemy regret not killing me. It was, that's where I was at. That was my headspace. Uh, so it was very selfish, you know, stubborn, competitive, selfish, uh, which I am I'm grateful for because, you know, it got me through a lot of really difficult challenges in those early phases in the hospital. And then even once I got back to Bragg and I'm working as an instructor and I'm training like a maniac, I was still about me doing what I knew I needed to do. And once I started going through that 12-week process of evaluations and tests and assessments, I completed a handful of them, I don't know, three, four, five. And uh, I'm doing well, confidence is high, I'm feeling good. I wake up in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., whatever, sweating, hot beating, and it had hit me in that moment that I was trying to go back to a team, to a team, I was trying to go back to a team. A team that has 11 other guys on it, most of which have wives and kids. And I didn't take them into consideration at a single point up until that moment. And it scared the shit out of me. Um, all of a sudden, the aperture kind of opened up. And I said to myself, man, as badly as I want this and as hard as I've been working for this and all the sacrifices that I've been making to get to where I am now is this in the best interest of the team? Didn't sleep the rest of the night. You know, wake up the next day, going to work, and uh, meet up with a couple of the guys in person, make some phone calls to the other guys that weren't around, the senior guys on the team. These were the guys that were on the team while I was on it before I had been wounded. They're still on the same team. So I, I talked to them, and, uh, and I'm like, guys, you know, is this... Am I, was what I'm doing the right thing to be doing? I know I, I can't see it. I'm obsessed with this, but I got these blinders on, which all I can see and hear and feel is what's in front of me because I know what is happening on the backside of that. I need your guys' input. Um, and, I, and I apologize for having not even considered you guys up until this point. I've been that 
driven towards this thing. Is this in the best interest of you guys? Because I cannot come back to this line of work and be a liability on a team. And when you're talking about an element that's comprised of 12 dudes, every single dude carries a lot of weight, like figuratively and literally, and you are putting your life into that person's hand. That's a very real thing. I can't be a liability. As bad as I want this, um, if you tell me right now that the risk is just too high, I will index this thing right now and I will find another lifestyle to live because I won't be able to sleep at night knowing I'm putting you and your family's well-being in jeopardy. And this was like three or four different conversations all the same day. And the response I got from these dudes was basically the, the same. And it was, honestly, dude, we don't know. Like, we don't know what this, what this would look like if you actually make it back here to the team. We don't know. We've talked about it, um, but we don't know. But what we've all decided as a single unit is that we want you to keep going to see if you can't make it back. And if you do, we'll take a hard look at it at that point. So just keep just just keep going, man. And uh, you know, that was relieving, right? But it still wasn't quite enough for me. I was still I still had like some massive concerns. And at this time again, I'm working as an instructor on the combatives committee. Well, we worked very closely with the Safawak committee, which stands for Special Forces Advanced Urban Combat which is a course that's taught within all the active groups. That's what it sounds like. It's advanced urban combat. It's like a five, six week course that teams would just cycle through during their training cycles. And the NCOIC, the, the head NCO that ran that course at that time, his name's Jimmy, he was set to leave his tenure as the lead instructor for that course and go back for a second run as a team sergeant which isn't common at all. Most team sergeants get one run at that, and then now they're being you know, groomed for sergeant major and, and senior enlisted positions. Jimmy got the opportunity to go back for a second run as a team sergeant, and he was taking my old ODA as the team sergeant. I did not know that um, up until that point. About a week or so prior, I was made aware that he was about to go back and take my team. And he and I had been working together for months as I was working as an instructor. He's working as the Safawak um, Committee in COIC and we're doing training together. So I go into work and uh, I'm in my office and we're getting ready to, 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 to start working, start training in the fight house. And uh, Jimmy happens to walk by and he looks in and I'm kind of sitting at this desk and I, he can tell I'm like disheveled. And he like pops in, hey man. And he's like looking at me, he's like, are you, you, know, are you good? Like, what's up, something's up, what's, what's going on? I close the door. Sits down, he's like, what's up? I said, hey man, I just talked to, you know, Nate and Adam and Brandon and these other guys. And, uh, you know, I didn't sleep last night because I'm, I have some concerns about getting back to the team and what that's going to do to the, for the well-being of the team itself and the guys on it. Um, I know you're going back to take the team. So this is probably the best time to have this conversation. Like, what are your thoughts, man? Uh, I know as a team sergeant, as a senior enlisted leader on a team, your responsibility is to the team as a whole above all else. You have to make the decisions in the best interest of that ODA. Uh, what are you thinking, man? Like he knew what I was, he knew what I was doing. At, not, at no point did he come to me and, and bring it up. He was just another supportive dude that I was working with. And he said, you know, man, I, you know, I, I found out I was going to go take that team 
take your team just like a few weeks ago. It became official. You know, I'll be over there in the next month or so, whatever it was. And so I've given it a lot of thought. And I've seen the way that you've been working here as an instructor. And I've seen the way that you've been training the last eight, nine months. And I've been seeing you knocking out all these different assessments one after another. So I have thought about this already. And he and I had, you know, an emotional conversation. But the at the end of that, or really the point from him was the same as the other guys. It was... I have an obligation to the team. I don't know if it's in the best interest of them and the team itself for you to be a part of that. But uh, I genuinely want you to keep driving forward and like, let's figure it out together. And if in fact you do get back and it's not within the best interest of the team, I will be the first to tell you and, uh, and we'll cross that bridge if we need to. You know, so I was obviously very grateful for that. Um, but what happened at that time, man, was my, my entire mentality switched where I was, I was motivated by me obtaining my own desires and wants. And in that moment, it was about what's in the best interest of those guys yeah. and their families. And you know, I'll stand by this when, regardless of what it is you're trying to do. If you're trying to do it for the greater good of someone that you love, chances are you're going to be a lot better at it. You're going to take it up a notch. And I came out of that meeting with him like I had a rocket on my ass. I mean, just completely and totally reinvigorated. You know, I went to jiu-jitsu practice that night and was just like balling people up because I was so excited and eager. Uh, not only that, I, you know, I had the support, which I knew of, but my entire mentality had just, had just completely rotated and I was ready to take things up to a whole nother level and I was already operating at a very high capacity, right? Um, but that did bump things up another notch. Because as opposed to going into the weight room or onto the track, thinking about taking those first steps off the plane back in Afghanistan to beat my chest, you know, and be like, I made it back. You know, I did it. As like, as glorifying as that would feel, as satisfying as that would feel, rather than envisioning that, I was envisioning, you know, my teammate's four-year-old son. And I need to crush this workout right now for him, for that kid. And I just felt like a whole nother surge of energy that was like coursing through my body. Um, that did take things up to another wow. another level. Yeah. Damn. <clears throat> so when did when did you get the verdict from the team? So while in Walter Reed. I recognized very quickly, it was difficult, but I did see it, that no matter how hot I trained physically, I would not be as physically imposing as I was with two legs. That was a difficult pill to swallow, right? Like, grew up an athlete, was an athlete in college, into boxing, MMA, jiu-jitsu, like high-octane physical lifestyle is what I thrived off of. It's what I enjoyed doing. It's what my team asked me to do when I was on the team as a two-legged dude. Everybody won. Well, it took a minute for me to recognize that I was not going to be as physically dominant as I was. Okay, how do I bridge the gap that I'm going to lose physically to, make, to maintain my status as an asset? How do I do that? And I began looking at kind of the softest side of our business, right? There's the door kicking and the sprinting and like the high octane 
aggressive physical stuff that we do. But especially in SF, there is a whole range of other activities and skill sets that make us thrive and make us successful. So I began looking at ways to invest my time and energy into those skill sets and begin building those skill sets, which began at the hospital, right? Where normally if I was reading something, it would be like kinesiology or exercise physiology or nutrition, right? Like that's what the type of information I would consume because I loved it and it worked for me to help me with what I was doing in the physical realm. That shifted to me reading about cultural dynamics, um, geopolitics, uh, increasing my foreign language capabilities. Like this is what I was doing now when I was studying and reading and researching to build up myself as an asset within these other sections of being, you know, Green Beret. I, I rode that train aggressively starting in the hospital and then all the way through once I got back to Bragg and I was working as an instructor, got myself into a bunch of uh, schools, military schools that are normally reserved for like senior leaders. Um, I was going as an E6, you know, I needed, I needed waivers to go as a staff sergeant to get into these things. We're talking about operational art and design, campaign planning, targeting methodology, like nerd wow. stuff, right? Like nerd shit. Um, because I was convinced that I needed to make up that, that ground that I was going to lose physically, um, to remain as an asset. And what's important to know is that I disliked all of that stuff. I really didn't enjoy it. It was painful, really, really painful. Uh, so I had to just rely on, you know, the faith that I had that it would be worth it in the long run. And then just the discipline to execute, even though I really didn't feel like it at any point. I continued to do that throughout that entire time um, and got credentialed with some other special skills that I otherwise never would have pursued. So once I did get back to the team, right, now we're back in Afghanistan, it's 2015, two years or so from when I was wounded, get off that bird. I did have that, you know, that glorifying moment that I had envisioned for months and months prior, you know, kind of that I'm back feeling, which was great. Uh, extremely short-lived because it was time to go to work and it was August. Uh, so the temperature is crazy. I talked earlier about kind of that clock that ticks with the prosthetic, especially in high temperatures. So I'm dealing with, you know, 90s and the hundreds. So even just from an amputee perspective, I had a lot to learn and a lot to figure out. Um, and then I also recognized a lot of gaps that I had in my tactical game. You know, I was, although I had been training prior to on tactical specific tasks, shoot, move, communicate type stuff, uh, it wasn't the bulk of what I was doing. Most of my training was done within you know, the weight room or on the track or in the pool type environments. Once I'm in Afghanistan and we're getting set up, I was like, okay, there's a lot of gaps that I have. I have a lot of work I need to do. You know, mundane stuff, like getting in and out of, a, of an up armor truck. Like I just never even thought that I need to train on something like that. Something you take for granted with someone with four appendages, now all of a sudden becomes kind of difficult. You know, so just, over the course of the deployment, um, you know, even just in the early month or two when we're there, and it was a kinetic mission. It was a CT mission. We were moving around quite a bit, um, running commandos, um, doing, you know, doing that stuff. For me, my employment was kind of a crawl, walk, run, where my team sergeant, you know, would take a real hard look at, you know, the objective and the logistics and the threats 
and just gradually started to include me in more and more and more things on the ground as we progressed. And as I made up the difference in those gaps that I was doing just off to the side, you know, during our downtime, I I mentioned going in and out of a truck. There were times where literally just trained on getting in and out of a vehicle a hundred times, over and over and over and over again. I had my teammates out there competing for speed. Uh, They had me on a stopwatch, they're filming me. And this is me getting in and out of a truck, just countless times where I'm trying to, if I put my hand here, if I put my foot here, if I put this hand here, I can shave off a, a second. I can make it more efficient. And then just repetition, repetition, repetition. So that was my life for that entire six month trip. But um, to your point and to your question, after the first maybe 60 or so days that we were there, and again, I'm kind of gradually easing into more and more of our kinetic ops. During that time, I was able to employ a lot of those skill sets that I had forced myself to learn um, during that train-up process for me. And these were skill sets that didn't exist on the team, right? So unless they had gotten someone else in that had done those things, they would have they would have had a gap. They would have had a void, one that I was able to fill in real time, and uh, and then I was recognized by by the guys. So we kind of had we had several kind of azimuth checks along that time frame. But at a, at about a halfway point through the trip, you know, two three months in, we had kind of a full blown like team meeting sit down about this specifically. Said, okay, it's been about ninety days. We're here. This is how I've been employed. These are the things that I've done. These are the issues that I know that I still have. Like, what what are you guys seeing from your perspective? And um, the response to that was, hey, man, we're not only are we glad you, you're here because, you know, we love you, but that really doesn't matter uh, because we're because what you're actually doing is is making an impact within our mission. Like you are value added. And if you weren't here to do the things that you're doing, uh, we would be worse off. So um, we're good. And Byron, something crazy happening. Well, let's just keep driving on. And I give my ODA leadership at that time, man, a ton of credit because what I would what I was doing was unprecedented. It hadn't happened before. Like yeah. there hadn't been an SF guy as an above the knee amputee go back to a team and go back to combat. So there was visibility on us all the way up through the beltway. Like senior, senior leaders were made aware that this was happening. Um, and no ODA or no soft element wants a lot of people looking at them. They yeah. want to be left alone to conduct their operations, right? Um, I give my leadership on the team a lot of credit because they absorbed that, the, the incessant phone calls coming down from their boss's boss's boss because their boss keeps asking, hey, what's up with this one-legged guy that's in Afghanistan? Like, how are things going? You know, so a simple question like that that's coming from a three-star will get people spun up pretty fast. Um, so they dealt with that uh, the entire time I was there, almost to the point where if one thing happened, man, you know, if one thing happened, even something small, I think they were just ready to to yank me off that team, yank me out of that mission. Hey, man, we tried it. You know, you gave it a shot. Congratulations for making it that far. But we, you know, we this beta test is done, and like we're gonna remove you. And I think that that's really where it was for the duration of the time we were in country. But fortunately, um, nothing to that scale nothing nothing happened that would warrant such a response um so overall man it was uh 
it was just, it was successful. Wow. Yeah, so, sounds that sounds like it. How many more deployments did you do as an amputee? Between then and now, um, another four. Four deployments. Yeah. All combat deployments. Yes. What yeah. was it? Let's just say the first engagement that you got in after. <laughs> as a one-legged guy. Yeah, as a one-legged guy. Yeah, man. Um, I'm trying to think of the first one. Any of Different. Them. Yeah, different. Um, I mean, were you 100% focused on what you need to be focused on, or was the fact that you have one leg now constantly in the back of your head? Yeah, there was definitely um, some hesitation and some lack of focus to where it normally would have been at 100% um, because I'm concerned about tripping and falling and stumbling down. And, you know, I was still really early on in this amputee game, man. I'm like two years out. And I, you spend time at Walter Reed with some of these more experienced amputees that are coming back through to get new legs and new whatever, guys that have been amputees for a decade. One of the questions I would ask them would be, hey, how long does it take for this, for this just to become normal for you? This just to become the way things are and it, everything is just in sync. And the answers would vary, but it would usually hone in around seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years is kind of what it would take to, for this to be just normal. I'm, you know, I'm just over two years out and I'm running through you know, the mountains of Afghanistan um, on my prosthetic. So <sighs> nerve wracking. In a lot of ways, it was almost like the first time I was in an engagement because it was just so different. And that same level of uncertainty, like, where do I go? What do I do as a brand new guy? That's like looking at the seniors for guidance to like, am I doing the right thing? I kind of felt something similar to that. Um, you, but, you felt like you were being judged? No, not that I was being judged, just that it was, it was, it was a, I was in a new body. Yeah. Doing the same thing, but in a new body. It just felt different. Um, and I, and, and I was, I was thinking about things in those moments that I otherwise never would have thought of. Like, are my feet in the right placement? Um, as I'm moving towards a piece of cover, as I'm approaching it, analyzing the terrain to determine the fastest way to get behind that piece of cover as I am now versus if I was on two legs, that's something that would not even be my mind. I'm just moving and I'm going to get down and it's going to take care of itself. Here, I have to actually think about how to go about doing that as efficiently as possible. Um, so it was a learning curve for sure. Yeah. Just like really anything else. Um, have you 100% overcome that? Being in your head? I don't think about it as much. Okay. No, I don't think about it as much. You know, random obstacles will trip me up literally and figuratively at times still. You know, yeah. I've been an amputee now just over nine years. So I still have plenty to learn and I still trip and fall at times. Um, but I don't, I don't expend as much deliberate thinking into my physical movements as I did, you know, when I was two years out, yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to learn combat as a one-legged guy. Damn, man. What what was your what was your team's response after the first first engagement? It wasn't that much different than 
normal. Really? There wasn't like a lot of focus on me and being like, let's sell, let's, let's spray beers on each other because, you know, Nick just did his first, got through his first gunfight as an amputee. There really wasn't much focus on me. Um, we had some junior guys on the team for that trip, their first team, fresh out of the Q course. So as a, as a senior dude, uh, most of it was kind of focused on them and like letting them ride that high and kind of focusing on the lessons that need to be learned for their sake more so than, hey, we got into a tick and Nick's here and like nothing bad happened. So like, let's celebrate. So oh. it was kind of, it was kind of marginalized, really. Were you expecting any of that? No, I really wasn't. In fact, if there was, I probably would have been annoyed. Yeah. You know, like, get like stop. Like, get away from me. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it probably would have irritated me, but it really wasn't anything to that, anything like that. There's a funny story. To fast forward to my following deployment quickly, we were on Somalia. Um, and... Uh, kinetic CT type hop. We, uh, we ended up taking a village and we were going to run. We we're going to rest overnight at this spot and we're getting set up, vehicle set up. I'm in a, I'm in an up armored Hilux, up armored pickup truck with um, one of the dudes that we were working with who was in a separate unit. It's just he and I. Now, he wasn't one of my teammates. We had been working together for the trip, but we didn't know each other really that well. And uh, I'm like, hey man, I got to take a shit. And he's like, okay cool. Like, why are you telling me this? You know, things are chill. Like we just cleared the village. We got a couple detainees that are getting dealt with partner forces, managing that partner forces, setting up a perimeter for us. Um, we're kind of managing cats, right? Doing what we do. And I tell this dude, I got to take a shit. He's like, great news. Thank you for that. And I said, yeah, it's like a little bit more complicated for me. I, I need to detach my prosthetic in order to do that. Just by the way, this is physically attached to my body. He's like, okay. I said, here's what we're going to do. Uh, you're going to back this truck up to like that point right there where I'm going to dig a hole and like get ready to do my thing. And I'm going to use the tailgate to help me do a single leg squat backwards so I don't shit all over myself. And I'm also not trying to hold a single leg squat and then shit. He's like, okay, cool, man. I got it. Makes sense. Like, I got you. Let's do this. So it was like a team effort. <laughs> So he backs the truck up, you know, I take my prosthetic off, take my kit off, throw it in the back of the truck, dig a hole, good to go. I'm holding on to the tailgate of the truck. I lean back, using the truck to kind of brace me, some of my body weight. I'm taking a shit. Sure enough, boom, round stock. You gotta stock. be fucking kidding me. Round stock clacking. And it wasn't this like crazy organized ambush, whatever. It was a couple of shitheads that decided to get creative but still, and they're relatively close to us. Partner Force is still setting up a perimeter, so they're still kind of scrambling. And uh, a couple rounds like ting off the like the hood area of the truck that I'm holding onto. He's in the truck. He's like yelling at me. He's like, we got, you know, we got contact nine o'clock, contact nine o'clock. Well, I just hurl myself over the tailgate into the back of the pickup truck just to get some cover. Pants down. Kit in the truck, weapon in the truck, prosthetics in the back of the truck. I'm laying on top of all this stuff. It, it was over within, you know, 10 seconds. But now I'm in the back of this pickup truck and I'm just covered in faces. 
And uh, this dude, his name is Matt, he pops out of the truck and he comes back and he takes one look at me and he just starts laughing his ass off. <laughs> Rightfully so. You know, so literally a shit show. And uh, I'm kind of like looking around like this totally just happened. Okay, cool. You know, one of my teammates ends up kind of coming over. He sees what's going on. He's like, what just happened? And then he can see and visualize what happened. He gets on the radio. It was a good time all around, right? Um, but just kind of a funny one-legged guy combat engagement story that obviously ended up being more of a more of a joke and something to laugh about. Yeah. But something you don't think about until, you know, you're in the moment and it happens. It's like, okay, that just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, good stuff. So you you went to dive school as a one-legged guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I did. That um and the reasoning behind that, so this wasn't this was just recently, you know, I just went back in twenty twenty. Um, just over a couple of years ago. And when I went through the warrant officer course in two thousand nineteen, um, I was the first amputee to go through the SF warrant officer pipeline. So I went through that. And with about a week left until we graduate is usually when you get assigned to what team you're going to go to. And I get assigned to the team that I'm currently on now. And uh, the, there's four digits to an SF ODA. If, a, if an ODA ends in the number four, then it's a free fall team. They specialize in military free fall or halo. If the number ends in a number five, it's a dive team. So you know right off the bat. If it's a four or five team, what type of team it is. The rest within the company can be really anything. So I get told I'm going to the team that I'm on now. And I immediately know it's a dive team because it ends in the number five. I'm like, that's interesting. Okay. And I had the same response that most guys have when they get told to go into a dive team, which is, holy shit, you know, this is going to suck. Right. SF combat diver qualification course is widely considered the most physically and mentally challenging course in the army, probably by a mile, which I would agree with. Um, it's tough to argue against that when the human body requires oxygen above anything else to stay alive, including blood and water and food and anything. And in that course, you will go without oxygen for an extended period of time in repetition. And to get through that course, you have to fight every single natural survival instinct that we have as humans and battle through those demons. Um, so mentally, that's where it becomes really challenging. And then physically, it's also a really challenging course. I had the same response that most guys have, which is mostly fear and concern and uncertainty. I said, okay, looks like I have now have my next two challenges in front of me. One is taking the team as the assistant detachment commander as an officer, which is new to me, I've been an enlisted guy for, you know, at that point it was like 12 years. Um, so that'll be new. But now I also got to try to figure out this whole maritime ops thing. Um, so left Brad, graduated the Warren course, got back to Fort Campbell, had a meeting with my company command team. And uh, within the first couple minutes of that conversation, they told me that they had no expectations of me going to dive school, which I found interesting. And, um, I said, okay. Subsequently, I had the same conversation with the battalion command team just like a couple days later. And they said the same thing to me. And in both of those independent conversations, my response was the same. I said, well, 
okay, that's fine that, that, that you're telling me that, but um, I'm going to attempt dive school. And they were kind of like, okay, looks like maybe some of these rumors we heard about this nut job, one-legged dude in group <laughs> might be true. And they're like, okay, man, but uh, like, we don't know if like, you're even allowed to go to dive school based on the physical profile that you have and your limiting conditions as per the army, right? As an amputee, we don't know if you can even, if you're allowed to go. I said, yeah, I don't know if I'm allowed to go either, but I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. So my first day with the team um, was in the pool. It just kind of so happened to work out that way where they were running. My ODA was running the pre-dive course, which is the prerequisite course you have to pass in order to be able to go to dive school. Different ODAs will run that within the groups. And my team happened to be tasked with running it. And it started my first day on the team. So my first day with the guys, I'm in the pool. And they're running the course with the students that were in it. And I was just kind of off to the side trying to mimic what the students were going through and really just try to figure out how to do all these tasks and requirements that you need to be able to pass to demonstrate that you are a viable candidate to actually go to dive school to Key West. That was my introduction to the team, my introduction to work as a warrant officer, and obviously my introduction into subsurface maritime operations on a dive team, all happening at the same time. And my teammates are phenomenal, you know, and they they didn't quite know what right looked like because no one had played around with this before. Yeah. Some of these events, it's very meticulous. The way you do some of these things, you know, it's like left foot here, right foot here. It's, it's prescriptive because it's based on risk and efficiency. How do we, this is dangerous stuff we're doing. How do we mitigate that risk and increase efficiency? So they've described, they've created these, prescriptions that you follow step by step by step well some of that stuff just doesn't apply to me because i don't have a right foot to step right over there so how so we're kind of playing around with modifying some of these procedures and modifying some of these techniques to execute all these tasks and it's just brutal man i mean it's absolutely brutal not only is it physically exhausting but you know you're having to push yourself past the point of what your body is telling you to do which is go to the surface and breathe because you're a land walking mammal. And so you have to ignore all that. So just an, an amazing struggle physically and mentally. Um, so I'm training physically to see if I can figure out how to do this. And then concurrently was kind of the administrative side of the house to get approval to actually go. And it's a great story, man. So I go down and I get my dive physical done, which is the most in-depth physical there is in the Army, is the one you need to do before you are given the green light to go to dive school. They check you for everything, right? Blood work, EKG, all kinds of stuff that they normally wouldn't do. So I go through my full dive physical and I'm, I'm cleared hot medically. Well, then I need to submit a waiver that needs to get approved to go because I have a permanent physical profile because I'm I'm an amputee. So that has to get approved by the SWIC surgeon, right? SWIC is Special Warfare Center and School, which is where selection, the Q course, um, and a lot of our schoolhouse programs all fall underneath the SWIC command, including dive school. So the SWIC surgeon is the approving authority for me to be able to go. He's an 06. So... The clinic tells me, Ray, we're going to send off your waiver for approval. 
And they're like, we don't know if this is going to get approved. We've never, we've never submitted anything like this before. No one had submitted a, a waiver for that before. So no one knew what was going to happen. So they submit it. And it's like a week later, man. And I'm training in the pool just about every day. Just getting my ass kicked. Brutal. I get a phone call from some random 910 area code number out of North Carolina. And I answer the phone. And before I say, you know, before I can even say hello, there's just this yelling on the other end of the line. And I'm like, what? Like, hello? What is this? And it's like a dude is yelling about a profile that he's looking at for a one-legged guy who wants to go to dive school. And what I think I just happened was someone happened to inadvertently dial my phone number and that person's having a conversation about me with somebody else. Oh, shit. That's what it sounded like I was hearing. Yeah. So I'm going, hello, I'm yelling. That's not what was happening. The guy that, I, that called me called me intentionally. He was just yelling at me. And eventually I realized who it was. His first name is Mike. And he was the, prior to being the SWIC surgeon, he was the third group surgeon back when he was a lieutenant colonel. And he was actually the first guy that operated on me at Bagram in Afghanistan in 2013 when I got brought in on that medevac bird. No way. Yep. First guy that operated on me was him. And he's a wild man. He's still in now. But he's a, he's a wild man. Awesome individual. You know, saved my life. One of the many that, that saved my life. He's now the SWIC surgeon. And eventually, I'm like, who the hell is this? And he tells me who it is. And I'm like, oh, sir, what is, what do you, what's going on, man? What are you doing? You know, why are you calling me? What? And why are you talking about me? I was just completely confused. He's like, no, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at SWIC now. And I said, okay, cool. Wait, are you, the, are you the approving authority for my waiver? He said, yeah, I am. I said, okay, well, are you going to approve it? And he's like, yeah, I already did. I just, I just sent it back. Like, you're good to go. You know, he's like, I think you're out of your fucking mind that you want to go down to dive school as a 37-year-old warrant officer with one leg. All three of those things are extraordinarily uncommon to go even go to dive school. Like, dive school is a young man's game where dudes typically go right when they graduate the course, they get assigned to a dive team, and then they immediately go through that process to get dive qualified to be on that team. So most of the most of the kids that are at dive school are in their you know early to mid twenties, um, as like as as junior NCOs is usually what you see. To be thirty seven years old as a warrant going to dive school just by itself is extremely uncommon. And then obviously when you factor in the fact that I'm an amputee and that an ampu- no amputee had ever attempted to it's go never before. Been done. It puts me in this like crazy weirdo unicorn category. So the colonel, um, he approved it. You know, I always wonder if if that would have been denied hadn't I had you know a, a history with the dude that needed to say yes. So I got pretty lucky, I think, that it was him, and he knew enough about me to that he was okay to assume that risk and let me go anyway. Um, so once that was once that was greenlit, man, then it was then it was really game on. Um, you know, from that point and things get even, things get even more complex because now we're in early 2020, right? Um, I got to my team in, um, the, in May of 2019 and I'm in the pool, I'm in the pool and it's now early 2020 and I am, uh, I'm getting ready to go to dive school, right? 
Well, then COVID happens early 2020 and everything closes. Like all the schools close, the gyms close, the pools close. I was supposed to go in, in May to dive school. And uh, I was supposed to go to pre-dive in April and then dive in May. And right now we're in around March of 2020 and I'm getting prepped to go into pre-dive as a student and everything shuts down. So I assume that dive school is canceled and we'll just see what happens with this COVID thing and then I'll, I'll pick it back up once we know what this looks like. So I stopped training. I can't get into a pool. I don't think I'm going dive school. Up to that point, I had been training like a crazy person, very similar to the way that I was training when I was trying to get back onto the team. Um, you know, I locked myself into this dungeon and I was just pain and punishment. And I knew that I needed to push, especially my endurance capacity, to just a whole nother echelon if I was gonna have a chance of making it through a, a course like that with that kind of curriculum. So I was training three, four times a day, doing dry breath hole training two, three times a day. It was just nonstop. All that stopped because COVID happens and everything shuts down. So I go about two, three weeks where I'm just kind of chilling. I'm doing these little like home workouts with what I had you know, available to me. And the dive school Sergeant Major uh, was a third, is a third group guy who I knew. He was actually one of my instructors when I was a student in the Q course. He's now Sergeant Major in charge of dive school. He, uh, he calls me, calls my cell phone, and he says, hey man, um, we just got the green light. We're running dive school in May on schedule. We got a waiver to run it, we're running it. And I'm like, dude, I haven't been training the last like two, three weeks. I can't even get into a pool. I haven't gone through pre-dive. Like how is this even supposed to work? He's like, yeah, we're working that out now, but like start training like now, because this thing's going off. So then we start scrambling my team really to try to figure out how to get me into a pool so I can demonstrate all of the required events that you need to pass at the end of pre-dive to be credentialed to go to dive school. I needed, I still needed to do that. And what we ended up doing, we went a little off the rails, but we found a YMCA that was up in Madison Fieldville, Kentucky, that one of my teammates used to work at when he was in high school as a lifeguard. You gotta be shitting me. Calls up this facility that's been closed for about seven weeks because of COVID. And they agree to open up the facility to let us in to come in and train. Now, I had four days before I met that endpoint where I needed to have my memo signed and submitted that I had demonstrated that I can pass all these events, normally which happens at the end of a two-week training block. For me, I had not only not gone through that two weeks, but I hadn't been in the water for almost three. That's a very perishable skill. Yeah. Right? It goes away really quickly. So we have four days in this random pool in the YMCA in Kentucky. <laughs> they open the facility, we get in there, and my whole team's there. And not only is it a deeper pool than what I had been training on, which makes a difference, but it's freezing because they hadn't it hadn't been turned on. Like I'm talking it's in the 60s. Oh shit. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So I get in this thing and I'm training for three days in a row. Boom, boom, boom. I do not pass a single event in any of those three days. Not one. Fail, fail, fail. Failure after failure. Every day. It was like four or five hours a day. Three days in a row. Didn't successfully pass a single one of those events. 
Now we're on day four. And our actual dive locker cadre, these are the guys that certify the candidates at the end of pre or during pre-dive. They show up to validate me. And I walk in there and I'm pretty disgruntled. I'm like, there's no way this is going to happen. I've got my ass kicked the last three days. Um, and I pass all the events. No shit. Pass all the events. And uh, the NCOIC of, the, of our dive locker, of our maritime support section detachment, he said, yeah, man, you, you, know, you, you did it all. You're good to go. So that gets sent down to Key West. They're like, you're cleared hot. Medical, you're good to go. Waiver's good to go. Come on down, man. And uh, let's, let's see how this goes. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, Key West itself, the school itself, it's six weeks long. You know, it's brutal. I was hanging on by a thread the entire time. Um, and back barely hanging on by a thread. You know, the cadre down there uh, were very deliberate about not treating me any different than anybody else. Same standards apply, period. Because uh, they, they have to. Right? The, the events that you go through prior to getting into the ocean are there for a reason. And it's to mitigate those that are too much, too high risk to put in the ocean. Because the ocean doesn't cooperate. You know, I'm talking to a seal. You know this better than I do. Things go wrong, especially when you go underwater. Things yeah. are going to go wrong. So they, they go through that, that, that rigorous training prior to in the pool um, to weed out those that, that don't display the level of capability to remain calm under pressure in the most extreme circumstances. Um, but no one really knew how I was going to complete some of these tasks. So it was a little bit of a learning curve for everybody where sometimes they would give me like 10 minutes to try to figure out what body position I would need to go into where this is what students normally do. That doesn't work for you because normally they would be on their knees, for example, at the bottom of the pool for this event. Well, you don't have one of those. So try this, try this, try this. You know, I'm playing with different prosthetic attachments, different components to try to get somewhere close um, to a position to be able to do it. And then it was like, okay, now we're going live. Like, let's go, man. So it was, uh, it was a brutal six weeks. Yeah, I'll bet. You know, brutal six weeks for sure. On the back end of that, I was completely and totally exhausted. But um, but I I, I made it through. I got to ask, I mean, how the fuck do you do it? Do you, are you do you have the prosthetic when you're in when you're in the ocean and you're diving or yeah man so I, originally I, I went to my prosthetist who's a, you know a, a, a private clinic is who I see because there isn't a prosthetist section department on Fort Campbell and uh, that's who I work with and they're 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 amazing they gave me a, a fin to use and basically I would detach my prosthetic just above the knee and then I would insert this fin into my socket just a fixed fin that's all it was couldn't walk on it there's no foot it's just a fin um that's what i used and it's this little baby thing it's really small uh, my, and my teammates were calling it my the finding nemo fin because it was just so <laughs> it was just so different to my leg you know it really didn't do much for propulsion it really just kind of acted as a rudder okay. and it would give me just enough stability for me to recock my actual engine, which was 99% done through my left leg. That was what was propelling me, whether I was treading 
or if I was traversing or whatever it was I was doing, my left leg was the one that was moving me. My right leg was just enough to kind of give me a little bit of counterbalance to help me navigate or just keep me above water just long enough to recock the next guy, my actual leg. I get down to Key West and this is what I'm using. This is the equipment that I was given. It's like, I'm going to make this work. And I make it through uh, the precipice of dive school, which that, that, that precipice is the one man confidence test, um, which is just an underwater hellish experience kind of at the, at the pinnacle of your entry pool section or phase of dive school. And usually once you cross that threshold and you pass that test, uh, the attrition rate drops dramatically. That's where most people get lost is, is in the, the, the phases prior to and then during one man um, is when most guys get lost because after that, you actually start diving. That's when you get brought into the ocean and now they're really teaching you how to do you know, subsurface infiltration and navigation. So I make it past one man and I'm, now I'm getting ready to go in the ocean. Well, there's a nonprofit referred to, or they're called um, the Combat Wounded Veterans Challenge. And these guys place a lot of emphasis on, on maritime activities for combat wounded vets. Mostly it's amputees. And they go down to Florida, down to Key West, once a year for their kind of annual dive event. And they bring in all these vets, that most of which are amputees, and they take them diving. Like recreational style diving. Well, they use the pool on Key West at CDQC as their train-up area, as they're fitting these guys and girls with different prosthetic components. Put them in the pool, have them move around. So there's a relationship that exists between that nonprofit and the schoolhouse. Well, once I pass one man, the company commander of dive school calls up this nonprofit and says, hey, we got this guy down here. He just passed one man. We're about to put him in the ocean. This is the equipment he's using. And it's not going to work when he actually goes subsurface because there's a certain element of drift that happens when your two mechanisms of propulsion are so different. When I'm doing a surface swim and I have a visual representation of where I'm trying to go, I can correct for that. Once you go subsurface, you're just looking at a, a navigation board and a compass. You're just shooting an azimuth and you're going straight. You're not going to notice or be able to correct that level of drift. And the commander down there knew that. So he calls this, this nonprofit up and says, this is the situation. Can you help this guy out? And the next day, four of them jumped on a plane and flew down to Key West with just a case of prosthetic components. And sure enough, I was, in the, I was in the ocean that day and we did some short dives, like 500 meter type dives. And uh, when I was driving, meaning I'm the one on the compass, I was wildly off course. You know, you're above... You got your azimuth, you look at your target, you go subsurface, you shoot that azimuth, and you just go. By the time I hit the shore, I would be, I was way off target because of that level of drift, because my propulsion was so imbalanced. So the commander was right, and I had no idea that this was happening in the background, and this team shows up, and they're like, okay, man, let's, let's get this figured out. So I spent about four hours that night in the pool with these guys that were trying all these different types of prosthetic components on me. And uh, they ended up giving me one that basically we I attach a free diving style fin, which is a really long, narrow fin um, that a lot of like spear fishermen will like use. Like the really flimsy kind? Flimsy and long and narrow. Oh, good. Yeah, so I ended up 
getting a configuration where that was attached to my prosthetic side because it's much longer. And then I would use a standard one on my sound side. When I got back in the water um, in the coming days, once I got done kind of feeling it out and playing with it, man, it was like I had a, an engine because my left leg had gotten so strong because yeah. that's really what was driving me that once they gave me something that gave me some propulsion, I was like a rocket ship under there. So, No shit. Yeah, so my, my components changed while I was in the course and then it was a matter of figuring out how to do um, like BLS procedures, like once we actually hit the beach, if I'm using a fin that doesn't have a foot on it, doesn't have a knee, I can't secure a beach tactically with obviously with that. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, so we get to you know we get to our BLS site to actually go through our procedures where you normally you know you take off your fins, you rig up your stuff, you get your rifle ready to go, you go through that as an element before you come surface and go on. Where it just I had another step in the process which was to detach my fin, secure that to my kit, pull off my actual prosthetic that was secured to my kit, reattach that, secure that in, and then be able to walk up onto the shore. No shit. Yeah. That's incredible, man. Yeah, it was tough. Damn. How long tough. ago was that? About two years? Uh, almost exactly two years. I graduated in June of 2020. Wow. No, but you know, man, it, people ask like, why'd you go to dive school? You know, we, we just looking for kind of that next challenge. It was handed to me because I was put in a leadership position on a dive team. It, it's a professional obligation to be a combat diver, to be dive qualified, to be on a dive team. Does it. And I'm not about to be treated any differently than anybody else, especially in a leadership role. You know, the, the one thing that binds di dive teams together, it's having gone through that additional filter. Yeah. of dive school and coming out on the back end successful. Um, rite of passage, if you want to use that. But it really is what makes dive teams special and makes them great, not just based on the maritime capability, but within all of spectrums of operations because you've just been through an additional layer of scrutiny and have demonstrated your willingness to literally die, put your life on the line uh, for your dive buddy and to stay calm under pressure when you take 12 dudes that have all been through that additional screening and lump them together, I don't care what kind of military operation you're conducting, you're going to have a high-performing team at your disposal. Um, so I wasn't about to be held to a different standard or treated any differently. I was going to exhaust every single possible option to get down there and, and, and do it. Um, so that's why I did it, man. I just happened to get tasked to a dive team and, okay, I'm on a dive team. That means I need to be a diver. So let's... Let's go. Damn. That's, a, that's, that's incredible. I'll be, your team has got to have so much fucking respect for you. I'd like I mean, to think so. Yeah. I, can, I can't even. I mean, wow. I'm just blown away, man. I'm <laughs> blown away. So what's next for you? What's next, man? So, you know, I'm still on the team now, but uh, but that's about to come, you know, to an end here pretty soon. Um, the, like the next evolution of my career progression is is on the horizon. So I'm gonna savor what what last moments I have, you know, being a team guy, and then I'm going to embrace that next phase of my military career uh, with open arms and 
and with motivation and excitement. It took me a while to be able to be accepting of that. You know, I'm currently doing the only thing that I really want to do in the military is, is be on a team, but you, you can't do it. You can't do it forever, man. Like it yeah. runs its course. You know, I've had a really great run. It's been 15 years, um, over nine of which has been on one leg. And that comes with a price, you know, physically. It comes with a price. There's a lot of compensation that goes on here where I've got muscles and joints and ligaments and tendons that are op I'm forcing to operate in a way in which God really didn't intend for them to be used. And I've been very lucky, um, as well as had a sophisticated training program that I've followed meticulously that has allowed me to, to have this run that I've had. So um, it's bittersweet, right, to say goodbye to the, to the team life, but that, you know that next thing kind of moving up to to the next next echelon of leadership really just kind of broadens your your uh, level of influence and kind of what you can affect. So I'm actually at a place now where I'm looking forward to it. And that's kind of in the short term, man. You know, like I got another five years left of active duty time before I hit that 20-year mark, which barring something crazy is what I will do as a professional and personal goal that I've set, you know, years ago to see that thing through the finish line. Um. So I'm going to enjoy the time that I have, you know, learn as much as I can while I keep doing it. And then beyond that, you know, getting out, you know, out of uniform, I'm, you know, in, in many ways, I'm really already doing it as kind of a passion project uh, where I will continue to write um, consulting uh, workshops, seminars, speaking. Um, so really, you know, doing what I do now as, a, as an SF warrant officer with most of what I do is as works is as an advisor to decision makers, really just maintaining that, um, but taking it, you know, obviously out of uniform to a variety of different, you know, sectors and industries and individuals. So I'm blessed, man, where I, I've lived the last 15 years and I live the lifestyle of one that, that I genuinely love and it's one of purpose. And uh, I've already identified what that next thing is. So where a lot of guys struggle with transitioning out um, I won't have that. I won't have that struggle because I know what it is, and I'm I'm slowly and meticulously grinding towards that now. Yeah. Well, there's I was, you know, at the beginning of this, I wanted to talk to you about that, but I mean, you're just so resilient, and you've overcome every, literally, every fucking obstacle that you've come across. I don't, I don't see how that could be any different at all especially considering what you've overcome already i mean man i i just wow that's that's i just i'm fucking speechless man your career everything is just the resiliency is it's nothing short of incredible it really is it's been a wild ride man yeah i'll you know, say it's been a wild ride but and i'll say that I truly believe at the core of resilience is uh, is passion and purpose, and that's not kittens and rainbows, kumbaya and the clouds shit. That's that's real stuff. And when you love something, and when you believe that you were put on this earth to do something, that enables you to get past the endless list of challenges and setbacks and punches to the face, you know, and falling literally on your ass over and over and over again. You know, when, when that doubt starts to come in, you start to question what it is you're trying to do. When you are obsessed with it, 
which for me is comes through the lens of the guys I get to work with, just these elite men. Um, when you love it that much, it it makes it possible. Yeah. I'm just going to say, man, you've got to be one of the most baddest motherfuckers that I've ever met in my entire life. And I've, <laughs> I mean, that's... That's, I'm not saying that lightly. That is, um, you know, I've been in the community. I've, I know a ton of guys and that, that I've never heard anything like this. It's incredible. Right on, man. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad so, I got a chance to yeah. talk it out with you, bro. Yeah, me too. For real. But um, where can people find you? Yeah, man. Um, I have a website. It's machinenick.com. That's got access to um, interviews, podcasts, the socials are all on there. My Instagram is probably the most followed platform. Uh, it's nick.machine.lavery. Um, get the book on there. You can see the the nonprofits that I work with and support on the website as well. So that's probably the one-stop shop. And then most importantly is uh, how to get a hold of me. So I'm, I'm meticulous about, about going through my emails. Sometimes it can take a few weeks, but uh, I encourage people whether they got questions about being an amputee or physical training or what's life like as a, as an SF guy, uh, by all means, send it, man. And, uh, and I will get, get back to you guys personally. Roger that. Well, I'll link all those below every, all your social, your website, everything. I'll link your book below as well. So anybody that wants to purchase it can go and, uh, let's get the hell out of here and go get some dinner. Let's do it, man. All right, man. Cheers. Cheers. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.